I'm sort of shaking because I, I feel um, so grateful for the power of miracles. Um, it's hard to imagine that we're actually seated here um, because, you know, as everyone knows, Sheikh has been dealing with um, so much pain and today was one of the worst days. And so the fact that we're here is truly miraculous. Um, and, you know, thank you to everyone for your prayers. I think that we know from the start of Surah Yunus that this is a really powerful and really important surah. So I'm so grateful that we're actually here um, to, you know, hopefully, inshallah, finish in one day um, or with today. Um, and, you know, sometimes, like, um, the power of miracle extends to really sort of stupid things, like my, con my little introduction here, because every day I get up and I, I say stuff, and sometimes, like, literally right the minute before, I'm like, oh, my God, what am I going to talk about? And, um, you know, I, I always pray beforehand, please, God, help me say what you want me to say, help me think of something. And, like, today I was really needing a miracle because I just had no idea. So I put on this dress, and it reminded me of a time that I was putting on a similar dress. And my parents, um, when I was, you know, Muslim, for people who don't know, I, I, you know, when I became Muslim, it was something that was very um, upsetting to my family. And I actually became sort of estranged from them for about eight years. Um, and because of, um, I guess, what I want to talk about today, which is the power of conviction. Um, you know, I, I became Muslim because of my absolute conviction that um, Islam was the true message and that I believed in God and that I believed in this path. And I didn't care that my parents didn't agree with me and I didn't care, I mean I cared, but I didn't care enough to change my course of action, um, even if it meant that I was not gonna see my parents or talk to them or my extended family for eight years. Um, alhamdulillah, um, you know, we eventually you know, found our way back to each other but there was a cost of that too, um, which is that my extended family, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, um, you know, they all also realized or believed that I was a black sheep of the family. Um, they're all Christian, some are evangelist, some are, I mean, they're all sort of shades of gray, you know, shades of different Christianity. Um, you know, I had cousins who became pastors, um, you know, went overseas to try and you know convert people um, who people who have very close relations with Israel in fact one cousin I got in a fight with and haven't spoken to for probably 15 20 years because I said hey you know if you're going to Israel maybe you can do something nice for the Palestinians and that led to a huge fight um, so you know it's but the power of conviction you know you have to um, believe in what you stand for. You have to live life with purpose. I mean, this is what I absolutely believe. And I feel that um, these halakas have been so incredible for, you know, one, you know, validating that conviction. I mean, it, you know, for, for giving it depth and substance and strength. Um, and for people who have maybe not yet found that conviction yet, I truly believe that these halakas will allow people to get there. Um, you know, and conviction holds in all manners of life, um, particularly in the, in the face of illness. Um, you know, my, part of the cost of not seeing my parents, not seeing my extended family, my cousins, my all of that, even after we were able to repair our relations, you know, 
Sheikh got sick for, you know, as we've talked about before, he had cancer, he had heart problems, he had all kinds of medication, you know, I mean, all kinds of health issues. And so for a very long time, as I've spoken out about before, um, I really was the primary caregiver, you know, alongside, um, you know, Sheikh's mom when she was still with us, um, you know, God bless her soul. Um, but I simply could not afford to leave and go visit my parents who, you know, we lived in Southern California, my parents lived in Northern California, and the rest of my family did as well. But I did not have the ability to just get up and leave because I was caring for Sheikh. And this is one of these things that, you know, so now even to this day, like not very, you know, long ago, I was speaking to my aunt and addressing this point because I have now, you know, not only just become the black sheep of the family because I'm Muslim, but black sheep of the family because I'm a horrible daughter. I never for years and years went to visit my family even though we had, you know, um, you know regained connection, you know, and all of that because, oh, well, of course, you couldn't even get away for a day to come visit your family. And, you know, it's very easy, as I said to my aunt, it's very easy to be judgmental when you are not in the thick of things and when you don't understand what actually is going on. But again, the power of conviction, you know, God saw what I did, God saw what our situation was. I did not have, alhamdulillah, like the support system I have here today to, you know, do many, many things short of even like getting on a plane to go visit my, my parents for a day. And to this day, I still pay that price. You know, and I, I feel like, you know, even um, though things are much better, that's still like one of these wounds that might never heal because people will never understand what you go through. You know, and even in situations where people, you know, are judgmental and very critical about how you manage illness or how you handle your affairs or, you know, I, I mean, I'm willing to shove a nurse to the side, you know, if I know that something I do can help you know, the sheikh, because I understand his personal condition, I understand his illness, you know, someone else may not understand. Um, and again, power of conviction. You know, we, we live by truth, we live by what we believe in, and we try to do always what's right, knowing that God, um, you know, sees everything, knows what's in your heart, and, and knows, inshallah, that you're always trying to do the best that you can as an individual. So I, I say this because I think that, you know, as an only child, as I've mentioned, one of my greatest fears from the time I was young was being alone. And I think many people, even if they don't have, you know, even if they have siblings, um, struggle from fear of being alone um, or misunderstood or abandoned or feel anxiety and that kind of thing. Um, and one of the really beautiful things that comes with the power of conviction, um, especially in God, is that you never feel alone. You feel like you have God with you, and as long as you are, you know, staying on the path of truth, trying to, you know, like building a relationship with God, and you know, like one of my greatest sources of strength is just any time that I'm sad, I'm anxious, I'm I'm worried, I'm upset, you know, anything, or even if I'm really happy, is just knowing that I share that I can sit and talk to God and say, "Did you see that?" you know, this, or God, you know, I want to complain to you, I want to tell you what I'm feeling, um, and knowing that I'm not alone, because I feel it in my heart. Um, and I've said to some people here that, you know, that's the most beautiful thing that you can um, work towards if you don't have that, and, you know, um, building that relationship. And I think what is critical to that is um, laughing with God, crying with God, joking with God, um, and turning to God anytime you feel any sense of fear, anxiety, unhappiness, you know, uncertainty. 
like there are a lot of times even when I feel that, you know, when Sheikh is really sick and I feel overcome with emotions and I don't really quite know what to do with myself. I will take a moment and just say, God, help me through this. I feel the emotions like raging in my body. I feel myself getting pulled in a lot of different directions. And I just say, please, God, you know, help me like just navigate this. Guide me to what you want me to feel. You know, how, help me just feel better and know what to do. And without fail, God will eventually, you know, God will answer that prayer. And um, I'm so grateful for that. And I think it starts, again, with the power of conviction, um, knowing the truth of the path that you're pursuing. And I believe everything that we learn here only helps people to fortify, you know, to discover that path, you know, start walking down it, fortifying yourself, and, you know, finding um, that beautiful, inshallah, relationship with God that all of us have the ability to develop if that's what we want. So, um, you know, these, uh, Sheikh has said many times that, you know, this, type, this illness is a test um, for, for all of us who have something to learn. Um, and, and for me, I, I'm so grateful that, you know, it, it makes you turn to God and, and ask for help. Um, and when you see God send miracles like us sitting here, you just, you have nothing but gratitude and, you know, and alhamdulillah. So I, I'm, I'm so happy to be here. This was an incredible surah. And I'm looking forward to um, the continuation, part two, after the cliffhanger. Hopefully we can get through it, inshallah. Thank you. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, wa subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa tabawu bi ihsanin ila yawmi al-Din. Allahumma ya Rabbi. اللهم لا تكلفنا إلا وسعنا ولا تؤاخذنا إلا نسينا وأخطأنا ولا تحمل علينا إسرا كما حملته على الذين من قبلنا ولا تحملنا ما لا طاقة لنا به وافو عنا واغفر لنا وارحمنا أنت مولانا فانصنا قوم الكافرين يا رب اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قبل so inshallah, we will continue with Surah Yunus. I want to say uh, just very quickly, um, there, are, there are many blessings that come from illness. And one of the blessings is that uh, like, like much, like the very nature of pain and uh, uh, the nature of of the humility that comes with with um, the humility that comes with pain and the humility that comes with incapacity and um, the humility that comes with seeing your limitations. Um, with this humility, often what comes along with it is clarity. And for a very, very long time, I was very reluctant to say that this tafsir of the Quran, those who know me know, know why, because I'm just very, uh, uh, I'm very reluctant to make 
uh, aggressive claims that bombastic type people make and so on. But SubhanAllah, during this uh, latest round of, um, I really think that the people who are, who persevere through this tafsir and who are receiving it are receiving something very special. Um, and I really believe that, you know, as, as unfortunate as all the, you know, I get bits and pieces of what some of the usual losers say. Um, but regardless of these losers and whatever they, 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 their egos and their um, uh, breathing life into the Quran is something very special and um, unique. And if the price for that is pain, then I welcome it. Any amount of pain is worth the price. Um, but I implore anyone that hears me, whether I see them now or I don't see them now, anyone out there that hears this tafsir, um, don't allow it to be wasted. Uh, don't jump to dawn, dawn upon yourself the, the mantle of a teacher. Um, to become a teacher, you have to do your homework. But at the same time, do everything possible to support the survival of this tafsir. Because I've lived in the tradition, I've read in the tradition, I've read the published and unpublished, and I know what's out there. And subhanAllah, this illness has made it very clear to me that I should no longer pretend that um, that much of what you are getting in the tafsir you'll find in the books because you won't. Um, yes, everything I say is anchored in the written tradition, but much of this research is original and. Um, That's it. It is original, meaning that it required a lifetime commitment of hard work. And I am sure, I am sure that there will be people who will plagiarize this material and take it and as Muslims often do, and then, you know, say this part or that part as if it, it was always there and Never attributed, never attributed to the source it came from. Um, but that's what thieves do. And you cannot build an ethical structure upon an unethical act. That's just the nature of things. So ultimately, it, is, it will go nowhere. Um, all the acts of plagiarism and theft that will take place, and that I am sure of, ultimately will go nowhere. Those of you who want to do things the right way pedagogically and morally and ethically to help preserve this tafsir, please do. I think you will be um, 
doing something for the Muslim Ummah um, and for Allah. And may Allah reward you for it. Because we badly need it. We very badly need it. So in our journey with Surah Yunus, if you will recall, just a very quick summary. Um, and of course, I, I did forget a couple of things that, that <laughs> maybe it was a good thing that we didn't finish so I can come back to them. But anyway, it, Surah Yunus is very dense and it, it, there, you can spend, you can give a seminar, an entire seminar on Surah Yunus. Um, I mean, the, 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 the amounts of nuances and, and folds within the Surah is astounding. But anyway, so if you recall Surah Yunus, as I said, takes you into, it's a fair statement to say, into the psychology of belief itself. And the psychology of belief in relation to harm, to darar, which is a central theme in Surah Yunus. And as we will see, it, it, it's a theme that's continued in Surah Hud and Surah Yusuf as well. And it introduces this critical concept of those who stand on a foundation of truth, those who stand on a foundation of truth and then clearly delineates a difference between ethics that is premised on divine revelation and divine command and systems of belief that are premised on anything else, whether it is form of um, uh, intuitionism or uh, rationalism or um, pragmatism or whatever it is. But the key thing that it comes back to the Prophet and with all the objections that the Meccans had to what is morally unacceptable to the Meccans, the Prophet's association with poor people, the Prophet's uh, 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 policy of uh, equality between uh, races, between people Persian or Arab, uh, equality between black and white, equality between people from the, uh, prestigious tribes and people from no tribes at all. And we know that they come and tell the Prophet, change this. Um, we don't like this Quran. We don't like this, this minhaj, this uh, philosophy of and this, the answer from the Quran itself is very clear. Tell them it's not up to me. When you are premised on 
divine commands and an an ethical system that is divinely ordained you are not free to play accommodationist policies and not free to water down these ethical principles because of pragmatist uh, causes which is by the way something that so many islamic movements in the modern age overlook and forget. They think that when it comes to politics, they're free to play politics and put ethics aside. They, they misunderstand the entire seerah and they misunderstand the entire Quranic revelation. And Surat Yunus particularly then, as we said, delves into what I've called uh, because I, I, Qadi Abdul Jabbar is the one who, who initially uh, uh, brings attention to this, that um, the tendency of the, 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 the problem is not that people necessarily reject an ethical commitment, but they are aloof and oblivious towards ethical commitments. And Following Qadi Abdul Jabbar, I call this the agnostic tendency, a tendency towards agnosticism. So you are, you sort of, depending on the day, depending on the mood, depending on the circumstance, you're either a believer or not a believer. It just depends on what comes your way. And Surat Yunus, as we saw, takes on that attitude and it's very immorality because it's an immoral attitude. It's an attitude that quite often says, well, as long as belief benefits me, then I'm a believer. But if it requires sacrifices of me, then I'm not a believer or I'm not sure. And as we talked about, then Surat Yunus deals head on was one of the most often cited arguments of agnosticism, and that's the existence of diversity and difference. And the agnostics say, well, you know, because there's so much difference and so much diversity, then it can then maybe there isn't a truth. And as we talked about, Surat Yunus takes that on and says the truth is, if Allah didn't want diversity, Allah would have not allowed for diversity to exist. But diversity is the very part of the moral challenge that you confront. Is that despite of this diversity, that you ground yourself, again, back to the concept of qadam sidq, that you have a firm stand in truth before your Lord. So, and in Surah Yunus, it makes very clear that, <clears throat> it makes very clear that Allah will re resolve the issues that people disagree about in the hereafter. But the existence of differences of opinion 
will not get you off the hook when it comes to an issue of moral commitment and affirmative belief. And within this, we also talked about a very critical concept in Surah Yusuf and that which is encapsulated in the hadith of the Prophet, whoever loves meeting Allah, Allah will love meeting him or her. Is that if you want the path of enlightenment, then it is not a path simply of, uh, well, I obey, I do, I follow the law, but beyond the law, do you long for your Lord? Let me just underscore this because I can't remember if I covered it. The, the parable of the seafarers on verse 22, that the, the seafarers that assume that things are going well, assume safety, their life is stable, and their life then, the, the, suddenly the, the, the um, sea changes and they find themselves in tumultuous waves and then they pray to Allah wholeheartedly and when Allah saves them, what is it that they do according to Surah Yunus, يَبْغُونَ فِي الْأَرْضِ The response to safety, the response to security is to then commit injustice upon the earth. And this psychology of, in, in, in this parable, it's, it's very critical that it talks to believers, th those people who, but there is a problem, a consistent and common problem in belief. And that is, people will see things with clarity often only if they are under severe distress. Like our modern parable, if you're on a plane that's about to crash. Or, you know, and, and you realize, okay, we're going down. And then suddenly you, you see things with absolute clarity or severe illness, you know, you're told you've got six months to live and you have to, you think, okay, now I've got to settle my accounts. The problem though is, as we will see in Surah Yunus, is that, because it, it elaborates upon that, so it builds upon this, is that when human beings find themselves settled in a paradigm of security. In other words, they get the illusion of having controlled things. It is not that they intend to commit injustice, but they become oblivious towards the demands of justice. So they, they allow themselves 
to drift into unjust situations or to add to a, a, a unjust circumstances or to play parts a part in unjust circumstances. Um, and then we left off that, that stern reminder that remember that all sin, all injustice damages your spiritual self. Every time you allow yourself to ignore what is wrong. It is your own spiritual psyche that is damaged. So when you find yourself, you know, and this is something that is widely experienced. Many of us, you know, when we were children, we could feel a deep sense of empathy for someone who's suffering. But then as we grow up, we find that we are far less empathetic. And we ask ourselves what happened. Well, what happened are these many cumulative instances in which you've turned away. And the accumulation of these unethical stands withers away your platform of truth that you can stand upon with your Lord, Qadam Sidq. Because as Surah Yusuf say, those who have a Qadam Sidq, those who have a firm stand in moral clarity, in just in a, in a in a clear understanding of darkness and light. Well, precisely the parable of the seafarers that we encounter in 22, it alerts us to the fact that, well, if you are, if you have that type of psychological uh, um, lack of depth, you are, you are spiritually finicky. You are, you know, when things are going your way, you're firm in, with God. When things don't go your way, you start bouncing off the wall, going left and right and, and so on. That situation erodes your position and the possibility of having a strong moral stance with your Lord. You're, that withers away your ability to see light and darkness, to see wrong from right, to have that moral clarity of moral vision. Okay. Now, something that I forgot, and but it's important, so we need to go back to it. If you go back to verse 10, 
which as I said is the dhikr for this surah. دعواهم فيها سبحانك اللهم وتحيتهم فيها سلام وآخر دعواهم أن الحمد لله رب العالمين. Um, there are hadith um, there are some hadith that are related in this context that are that are worth knowing about. So the Prophet in commenting about um, um, this verse um, The hadith says, and then, but I'll, I'll paraphrase it. In the Mu'mina, Ida Kharaja Mukabrihi, Suwira Lahu Amalu, Fi Surat in Hassana, Fayakunu Lah, Anna Amaluk, Fayakunu Lahu Nuran, Waka Idan, Ila Janna, Walkafir, Ida Kharaja in Kabri, Suwira Lahu Amalu, Fi Surat in Fi Surat in Sayyia, Fayakunu Lah, Anna Amaluk, Fayantalakubihi, Hatta Yukhunar. This hadith occurs in, in a variety of versions, but the, the core concept is that it, it says that when upon resurrection, your, your deeds will be presented to you in an embodied form. So, now of course the hadith says that your deeds will be presented to you as if uh, uh, embodied in some form of body, like a, like a corporal reality. And then if your deeds are good, they, they lead you to um, heaven, and if your deeds are bad, they lead you to hell. The many versions of this hadith, however, if, if you reflect on it, it comes remarkably close it's as if it's picturing what we've talked about in the past, that you will see your deeds in, in our modern language, like a moving film or something, because it's, it's bringing the idea to believers that you will perceive and you will experience your deeds in the hereafter. Um, and that's something that in, in modern Islam we don't emphasize. Um, uh, it's something that, you know, before you do anything, if you ask yourself that question, whatever I am doing, whatever I am saying, whatever attitude I have, do I want to experience it in the hereafter, but from the other point of view? Because if it's beautiful, you will want to experience it. But if it's not beautiful, and so many, I mean, this is, this is cumulatively so many noted that often as, as an ethical, as a, as, a, as a tool, an ethical tool, quite often that this tool by itself is sufficient to do everything, because if you it, it is, if you imagine the embodiment of whatever deed in the hereafter presented to you, 
Um, it, it's a, a, you know, I'm not sure why it dropped out of Muslim contemporary discourses, uh, although it's well documented, and you find it in many trees. The other thing about um, the um, Surat Yunus, notice in, in verse, verse 23, or 22. So let's first uh, look at what. هو الذي يسيركم في البر والبحر حتى إذا كنتم في الفلك وجارينا وجارينا بهم بريح طيبة وفرحوا بها جاءتها ريح عاصف وجاءهم الموج من كل مكان وظنوا أنهم محيط بهم دعوا الله مخلصين له الدين لإن أنجيتنا من هذه لنكونن من الشاكرين فلما أنجاهم إذهم يبغون في الأرض بغير الحق يا أيها الناس إنما بغيكم على أنفسكم um, there is the there is a tense the, the verb tense changes in verses 22 and 23 to personalize the matter and the prophet والسلام, in commenting upon these two verses There is a whole, a whole set of hadiths that are narrated in very similar versions, but the the crux of that. So I'm going to pick the most common one and then go from there. Uh, so the Prophet ﷺ commenting about this says, "لا تمكر ولا تعين ماكرة ولا تبغي ولا تعين باغية." ولا تنكس ولا تعين ناكسة. and he would comment he would recite this very frequently and then would say أسرع الخير ثوابا صلة الرحم وأعجب الشر عقابا البغي واليمين الفاجرة now there, this same tradition is narrated in many various uh, related versions but the crux of it, the, the essence of it, when the when people ask the Prophet okay, well, in Surah Yunus, it says that people, the, the, those who have a finicky face, um, pretend, they, they see with moral clarity when they are under duress or hardship, but then once Allah allows them stability and allows them predictability and allows them a, a form of security, they start committing injustice or becoming a, a part of baghi. And that Allah then warns us that this baghi basically is against the self. And they ask the Prophet so what do we do? What, is, what are these verses? requiring of us. And the Prophet ﷺ says, do not 
do not become a conniving human being and do not assist a conniving human being. And do not commit an injustice, and an injustice is taking what is not your right. It's any time you demand something that is not your right, that's a baghi. And do not assist an act of injustice. And do not break a promise, but do not aid someone who breaks a promise. Now, in many versions of this hadith, it goes a step beyond and it says that do not connive, do not help a conniver, and do not befriend a conniver. Do not become unjust, do not assist an unjust person, and do not befriend an unjust person. And do not break a promise, and do not assist someone who breaks promises, and do not befriend those who break promises. And then the Prophet elaborates by saying that among the strongest of acts of virtue is Salat al-Rahm, the kindness to or family members. Uh, but the worst form of evil is baghi, baghi in all forms of injustice. Wal-yameen al-fajira and those who swear falsely. Uh, like the current president of, of Egypt, you know, I don't want to swear, and then he says, Wallah al-Azim, Allah al-Azim, and most, all the times that he swears, it's, it's all lies. Whenever he swears, you know he's, he's lying. That's the Yamin al-Fajr. The remarkable thing is that, the remarkable thing is that if you go back and you understand how these Muslims understood what Surah Yunus was telling them, it was establishing a principle for this nascent Islam, this new Islam. Again, remember what I said last time, they were persecuted people, they were people beginning in the, in the Islamic experiment, starting it, and it was very clear to them Injustice is a big no-no. Contributing to injustice is a big no-no. Being part of injustice is a big no-no. And even tolerating the unjust is a big no-no. And the responsibility of the word that if you say, I will do, you must do. If you say, I will not do, then you must not do. If respecting your word and honoring your promises. If these were elementary in the minds that were being formed by Surah Yunus and the teachings of the Prophet So when you say we follow the Sunnah of the Prophet, the Sunnah of the Prophet 
is never to become part of tolerating injustice or part of putting up with someone who swears and lies or someone who does not uphold their promises or someone who doesn't respect their word. Contrast between this and modern Muslims. If you want to understand why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't support us as Allah's people, it's very simple. It's like Allah put a constitution. You live by the constitution, you're Allah's people. You're God's people. You don't. This is not a meritocracy. This is not about a, a, a racial status or uh, some type of any status. It, it's, it's all based on a very clear moral path. You adhere to the moral path, you're with God. You stand firmly in truth. You don't adhere to the moral path, there is no qadam then you don't stand on that platform with your Lord. I underscore this because you find Muslims left and right talking about the Sunnah of the Prophet as if it is reciting the Quran with the right syntax or you know the right Ibham and Hunna and whatever. People that talk about following the Sunnah of the Prophet as if it is all these kushur, all these. Uh, false appearances. The sunnah of the Prophet, the core of it, was these moral and ethical principles where that surah like Surah Yunus, right after the Isra, is coming and saying, here is your ideology. Here is what's going to make God stand by you. You don't stick to this ideology, as Surah Yunus makes very clear, God is not going to stand by you. I'm just going to say, I don't, you know, it really confounds me how, when, when our tradition has so resoundingly denounced injustice and made the heart and the pulse of this religion justice. How can it be that Muslim countries are so full of so much injustice? You, 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 you have to come to the conclusion that their relationship to Islam, and, and this is why, I mean, it, it, the, the the, the pietistic affectations offend me so deeply because there's so many people that go around pretending to embody Islam, but when, when you engage them, you find that their understanding of what this message is about, what made the world feel the impact of the rise of Islam to be completely absent. Um, it, is, it is astounding. I mean, truly astounding. I have all these hadiths, and I've, you know, I don't, we, have, we don't have time to go through all of them, but 
that keep emphasize the, uh, this this core concept that no injustice you cannot be part of injustice you cannot aid injustice you cannot tolerate injustice you cannot befriend an unjust person you cannot even be nice to an unjust person and i've asked myself 30 years in the united states in the days that i used to be healthy i would travel a lot go to a lot of islamic centers have i ever in a single time heard one of these hadiths being taught to Muslim youth. Not once. Not once. In no institution. It is it is amazing. It just it blows your mind. And apparently these days, people who don't like what I'm saying go around calling me uh, or saying that this is a cult. Well, it's a cult of truth. If that's the case, then I'm happy with it. SubhanAllah, the Quran tells us repeatedly what the ignorant will always say about the upholders of truth. إِنَّمَا مَثَلُ الْحَيَاةُ الدُّنْيَا كَمَا إِنْ أَنْزَلْنَاهُ مِنَ السَّمَاءِ فَاخْتَلَطَ بِهِ نَبَاتُ الْأَرْضِ وَمِمَّا يَأْكُلُ النَّاسُ وَالْأَنْعَامِ حَتَّى إِذَا أَخَذْتِ الْأَرْضُ زُخْرُفُهَا وَزَّيَّنَتْ وَظَنَّ أَهْلُهَا أَنَّهُمْ قَادِرُونَ عَلَيْهَا أَتَاهَا أَمْرُنَا لَيْلًا أَوْ نَهَارًا فَجَعَلْنَاهَا حَصِيدًا كَأَن لَّمْ تُغْنِ بِالْأَمْسِ كَأَن لَّمْ تُغْنِ بِالْأَمْسِ كذلك نفصل الآيات لقوم يتفكرون والله يدعو إلى دار السلام ويهدي من يشاء إلى صراط المستقيم. So this is now ayah 24 and 25. This parable that حياة الدنيا life on this earth. is the, notice the, the use of the word zukhruf here, which we've encountered before. But that the, earth, that the nature of life on this earth is that it gives the appearance of vibrancy. And human beings respond to the appearance of vibrancy with the illusion of permanency. So every youth that starts thinking that they're good looking has the illusion that they will be good looking forever. Every young man who feels strong has the, it's very difficult for them to think about the time when the strength will go and the health will go or the looks will go. Even a hundred times harder when it comes to money. When you have the money, it's very difficult to think about the time when this money will avail you nothing. So, 
the there is a hadith that is again reported and notice how some sort we have a lot of hadith from the prophet that is connected to the surah we don't have this with all surah but surah like surah yunus we can we know a great deal about how it was received because of the amount of narrations about how the Prophet ﷺ interacted with the Surah. So there is another hadith uh, that is reported in the context of this ayah that maybe would be the best way to uh, talk about it. That uh, It, it, different narrations, but anyway, on Jabir is a narration, the Jabir narration is the one that I'm going to um, mention. That, uh, the, reportedly that the Prophet is among the companions and then a man appears and a man comes and visits him and sits with the Prophet. And they're talking about in Surah Yunus and the 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 many of the versions of this hadith say that they were talking about this particular verse and that then the man says to the prophet what is dunya what is earthly life and the prophet says that it is like but a dream as it's passing like a dream and then the man says, okay, and what is the hereafter? And the Prophet says, the after is the lasting home, here Abed. And then the man says, um, So, what is Khairul Ummah? What is what goodness does the Ummah need? Ummah is your nation, right? Your people. So, it says the goodness are those the awareness of God's commands the desire to fulfill God's commands. So then the man says, so how should one deal with dunya? He says, one should deal with dunya like, like a traveler on a caravan deals with the affairs with the care of the caravan with all due diligence. So it says, but what attitude should one have about dunya? And Prophet says, like someone who has been left behind, the caravan has traveled, and they are left behind, and they have no desire to catch up with the caravan. So it says, 
So what is the duration of the dunya? And the Prophet says, it is but as if you've closed and opened your eyes. And then the Prophet, as you would expect, said that this was, in one riwayah it says Jibreel, in another riwayah it says an angel, but doesn't specify who came to study with you your Quran in, in one version. and another version it says who came to teach you something about life. Now, the important thing about this entire discourse actually is what is reported around it. And the critical concept is that, and again, it goes back to the psychology that, that Surat Yunus is revealing to us, is that when human beings get to the point where they are able to go beyond necessity, beyond basic needs, to adornments, to zuchuf. Uh, Human beings develop an illusion that and, and I and, and, and that these adornments are a product of their technological accomplishments. And they sense of stability and confidence transfers from a relationship with God to a, to a confidence and belief in this technology, in their sana, as Imam Ghazali puts it. Sana is the same thing as, or sana as technology. But this is precisely the point where you drift away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when you start actually believing that Allah has nothing to do with the advancements in knowledge and advancements in technology, advancements in, in, in the way we organize our life. Even though the constant sunnah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is every technological advancement human being achieved collapses and is reborn again. Now, we, you know, as long as, if, if you study the history of civilizations, every civilization had its own technology that it developed and became very proud of and relied on sometimes to dominate so much. But the key here is Wallahu yad'u ila dari salam wa yahdi man yasha ila sirat mustaqim. So, why is this key? Well, Allah 
In Surah Al-An'am, this is the other surah where we have the expression Dar al-Salam mentioned. In, in Surah Al-An'am, it says, لَهُمْ دَارُ السَّلَامِ عِنْدَ رَبِّهِمْ Here, it says, وَاللَّهُ يَدْعُوا إِلَى دَارِ السَّلَامِ there are those who will understand that there is something beyond the cycle of the chase for a technological advancement, for the illusion of control, and the, then the collapse and the loss of control, that you moving beyond that constant cycle on understanding that what you ought to anchor yourself in is the moral paradigms of divinity. In traditional tafsir, they say, well, they say, well, Dar es Salaam means Jannah in the hereafter, although there's no reason to believe it is. In Sufi tafsir, they say Dar es Salaam is your ability to transcend and um, to get beyond materialism. I think that if you study everything that's been reported about Dar es Salaam and Surah Tunis, and also Dar es Salaam and Surah Al-An'am, and, and the differences between the two, it is clear that when Allah says, Wallahu yad'u ila Dar es Salaam, it's Allah saying, it's a, Allah is calling you for, towards a paradigm shift that you become anchored not on the building of Zuhruf and the disintegration of Zuhruf. Not, civilization is not defined by its adornments and the destruction of adornments and the collapse of adornments, but upon the concept of Dar es Salaam and Dar es Salaam is indistinguishable, in my opinion, from Qadr al-Sidqa in Rabbihim. That it is standing on four firm moral grounds with your Lord. So Dar es Salaam, the abode of peace, if I ask you intuitively, what is an abode of peace on this earth? And I say, do you imagine an abode of peace on this earth would be full of justice or injustice? Intuitively, without even being a scholar, you're going to say full of justice. I say full of inequality or full of equality. Intuitively, you're going to say full of equality. I say intuitively, full of misery or full of happiness. Intuitively, you're going to say full of happiness. If I say full of cruelty or full of mercy? Intuitively, you'll say full of mercy. So when Allah says, get beyond the chase for adornments, for the kharif or zukhruf, to understanding that it is about the morality upon that you stand. Now, human beings like as as Allah told us that people didn't start disagreeing and become argumentative and pedantic until the word was revealed to them or the word was given to them. It is only the human tendency towards the pedantic and the argumentative 
that somehow makes Dar salam something other than justice, other than mercy, other than equality, other than every moral value that we relate to by nature. So that's... Okay. But then Allah then elaborates upon this concept further and says, وَلِلَّذِينَ أَحْسَنُوا الْحُسْنَى وَزِيَادَةً وَلَا يَرْهَقُوا وُجُوهُمْ قَطَرٌ وَلَا زِلَّةٌ أُولَئِكَ أَصْحَابُ الْجَنَّةِ هُمْ فِيهَا خَالِدُونَ So, this is uh, 26. If you want to understand the backbone of Dar es Salaam and the very nature of what Dar es Salaam is built on core in the Islamic morality is the concept of Ihsan Ihsan is the perfection of goodness Ihsan is the call to perform goodness wherever you are. And goodness cannot be legally defined. It can be philosophically explored, but it cannot be legally defined. So Allah comes and says, Now you want to understand the dynamics of Dar es Salaam it's like saying, put forward goodness and what you will receive in return, goodness and more. In the Sufi-esque tradition, it's remarkable, but that word, waziyada, and more, you find an enormous amount written about it. Just that word. And more. What is the more? We can understand that if you put forward goodness, you receive goodness. But what is the more? Of course, in the Sufi's tradition, they, they, you know, they take it towards... It's, it's, but I think when you just look at the rest of the ayah, That's your answer. Most tafsir think that when the, uh, 26 and their and their faces will not be burdened by Qatar is hardship, walazilla or humiliation. Most traditional tafsir say that well, it's talking about the hereafter. I don't think it is. I think it's clearly saying that if you do goodness, you will receive goodness and more. What is, the, what is the consequence? That you will not suffer the material ordeal of those who live for material, um, for material 
quests. Those who chase after the adornments of, of life, those who define goodness by zuchlof. Listen, every unjust society, what, 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 do, what do they do? They build very fancy buildings, very beautiful little things for, to, to show visitors or for the elite to enjoy. But then you go beyond these fancy buildings, just a few steps into where people actually live, and you see absolute misery. So you'll have, you know, the fancy palaces, the high-rise uh, buildings. They, it, these are adornments. And they think that, well, we're fine because we have these adornments. When we have tourists come, we tell them, go look at our adornments. But then the fact that people live in squalid conditions doesn't bother them. That's not a husna. And... People who, this is Allah telling us that this philosophy of life leads to hardship, cycles of hardship and pain and humiliation. If you are wise enough to know that this religion is about morality, and about justice, and about Sirat al-Mustaqeem, the straight path, and about moral values. And so you pursue goodness and receive goodness. What you avoid is the inevitable agony and pain and humiliation that comes from structures of injustice. There is hadith that I could go over about this, but in the interest of time, I mean, basically, in some of these reports, um, the, the Prophet والسلام, is asked, I forgot, I'm paraphrasing, but anyway, he's asked if if societies that do not pursue husna, whether they are, whether God is with these societies or not, and the Prophet says God is not going to be with societies that don't put forward husna. And it, it, again, for the Muslim mind, that somehow you go all over the Muslim world and you, you, you ask them, well, do you have a husna in your societies? And you, they might say yes. And you say, well, how about the, the, the gross inequality? How about the fact there's so much injustice? How about the authoritarianism? How about the despotism? How about the oppression? How about all that? And they, they somehow, they want to reconcile between a husna and that. And what I'm saying is they're irreconcilable. Okay, let's move on so I don't kill myself. Okay. Okay. And then 
27, I can't jump 27 again. Okay. Okay. So, Now, as to those who put forward, instead of husna, wrong, evil doing, the logic is so pure and clear. Consequences. This is what they will receive. وَتَرْحَقُهُمْ زِلَّةً Now, this, let's see how they, the study Quran translated this. It says, um, who commit evil deeds are a compass of an evil is one like it. An abasement shall overcome them. تَرْحَقُهُمْ زِلَّةً Yeah, but it's not just abasement. تَرْحَقُهُمْ زِلَّةً is the if you've read books like Crime and Punishment or Brothers Kramazov, a literary picturing of what injustice does. Tarhakum Zilla are a people that are literally burdened by the degradation and humiliation of injustice. So, although we, we, we got accustomed to the language of the Quran, so we recite it all the time and pass it, but, but reflect on it. Allah is saying, evil de deeds beget only evil deeds. And ultimately, the net effect of it is that you will have people burdened by anonymity and, a, and a, the, the degradation of whatever evil they've, they've sold. And then, of course, the... Yeah, oh, this is important. Uh, study Quran says there will be none to protect them. There will, there, there will be none to protect them from God. Okay. Then it, it will be as if their faces are covered with dark patches of night. Again, it's very literal, but understanding the كَأَنَّمَا أُخْشِيَتْ وُجُوهُمْ قِطْعًا مِنَ اللَّيْلِ مُظْلِمًا The failure to pursue justice, the failure to pursue goodness, as we said, will often make the commission of a sayyah, of wrongdoing, natural and common. So it becomes common in society, not even remarkable anymore, to receive bribes and pay bribes. Okay? That's sayyah, right? It becomes common in society for some people to live enjoying great wealth and some people to live in 
abject poverty. It becomes common to society for some people to be treated like kings and queens because of their social status and other people to be beaten in police stations and abused and humiliated and no one cares. We have already been told that the net result of this is that collectively you will look upon these people and you will see as if their faces are burdened with degradation and humiliation. They are broken people. The Quran could not have put it more beautifully. They're like a broken people. But then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes and adds something that is truly remarkable. It says, it is as if the night itself, darkness itself, has become plastered upon their faces. So you ask, well, how so? Remember I told you that the core of the Islamic message is to take people from darkness to light. And I told you that all human beings have auras. And their auras are either shades of light or shades of darkness. In societies where injustice is prevalent and rampant, it is like pollution. It is as if the darkness of society itself infects the aura of people. So it is raising the consciousness of collective responsibility. And remember, again, this is after the Isra, first surah after the Isra. These Muslims, although they are persecuted and going through an extremely difficult time, they must think in terms of a collectivity that either lifts itself lifts one another in a moral order that makes this collectivity luminous or otherwise the darkness will engulf them. So when Allah says it's not patches of darkness that on their faces it is like saying it is as if because of all the wrongdoing, darkness has engulfed them. This is precisely why when you find me harping on khutbah after khutbah after khutbah after khutbah about injustice, because injustice doesn't just darken you. It darkens you and it darkens everyone that tolerates you and supports you. 
and ultimately it darkens the, the entire like all the 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 When people fail to think about justice, when people fail to talk about justice, they are insulting their God. Because they're saying their God is not about justice, their God is about something else. Well, after a lifetime of the Quran, I am telling you, this does not please Allah. When, when, when Allah finds people who claim to believe in Allah acting as if injustice is finally fine with God, it's, it's, it's perfectly fine with God, then for darkness to overcome them is the least that would happen to them. Um, there is a, there is a, a, in the Sufi tradition especially, there is something, in the Sufi tradition, as I said, um, it being, doing good increases your light, doing anything harmful or unjust, takes away your light until your light is completely gone and then it adds to your darkness. But there is something in the Sufi tradition about this particular ayah that I, that I, uh, that's worth men mentioning. Um, in the Sufi tradition, they are, when it comes to this particular ayah there, you find often that they point out that if you are going to commit a good deed, but because of your good deed, your sense of pride and arrogance increases. So you do good, but as a result, you, you feel good about yourself. Contrast that with someone who actually commits a sin, but having committed a sin, what they feel is a sense of shame and a sense of longing for Allah's pleasure, for, Allah, for Allah's guidance. In the Sufi tradition particularly, they are, they are often point out that the second person, the sinning but humble person, is much better than the person who does good, but the result of their good is arrogance. Um, something to ponder. Because there are a lot of people that will do something good, but they're very pompous. You know, I used to encounter them in, on the boards of so many Islamic centers. You know, people who donate a lot of money to Islamic centers and then they, they walk around like a peacock. Um, a sinner who doesn't walk around like a peacock is better off. 
So now we are 28 and 30. فزينا بينهم وقال شركاؤهم ما كنتم ما كنتم ايانا تعبدون فكفى بالله شهيدا بيننا وبينكم ان كنا عن عبادتكم لغافلين هنالك تبلى كل نفس كل نفس ما اسلفت وردوا الى الله مولاهم الحق وضل عنهم ما كانوا يفترون This is 28 29 and 30 I pause, I usually pause a little bit to give you a chance to read the English because uh, my, my, my energy is often waning. Um, but what, what I want to say about um, 28 and 29 and 30, um, The, the idea of shuraka, the partners. Now, of course, in traditional tafsir, what is often talked about are idols. And, but if you think about it, Allah is not going to take these idols, despite some hadiths that are not reliable. Um, Allah is not going to take these idols and put the idols in hellfire. So it's not about the, the idols. The idea, the core idea here is the sharik. The sharik, the partners that you ascribe to God. Now, The key thing about idols is that idols are the object upon which people project their fancies, their desires, their impulses. Idols are but objects upon which people have projected and so many of their own psychological impulses. The problem with idols, other than the fact that they are not gods, obviously, and not inter intermediates towards God, is that what is projected onto these idols is wrong. So, as so many theologians have pointed out, that the shurakat, the partners ascribed to God do not necessarily have to be idols at all. But it's anything that becomes the authoritative frame of reference for you, including, including habits, superstition, um, anything that you close in the garb of authority, 
và và intervenes to literally interrupt the chain of command between you and God. Um, so this could also include saints, could include, um, you know, um, uh, in, in a lot of the Sufi-esque tradition, they say, there is a hadith of the Prophet that whatever you love, whatever you love, you will be partnered with in the hereafter. So extrapolating upon this hadith, they say that whatever you love, emotionally, psychologically, you become as if abd towards that thing. So, not abd in the in the in the in the actual sense, but psychologically, it becomes a something that plays a key role in defining your normative conduct and your normative belief. So you better make sure that what you love is consistent with your Rabb. If you love anything that is not consistent with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then invariably there will be a tension between what Allah wants of you and what you love wants of you. But if what you love is in harmony with your Lord, so in the Sufi tradition, among the, the first things they do in, in Turqul Irtaqa, in the stages of elevation, is to get you to realign your commitments, your, realign your relationships of love to only things that are in harmony with God. So anything that you love that is not in harmony with God they, they actively work on, on breaking these associations. Tell myself I'm, I'm not going to forget anything. Okay, notice um, in 30. Um, this is um, one of the things um, that it's remarkable that so, that so many Muslims uh, just miss it. Look, look at the, what it says. Hunalika tubla. تُبْلَوْ كُلُّ نَفْسٍ مَا أَسْلَفَتْ There every soul will experience what it did. This is it precisely, this is exactly what we've said before. You will experience what you've did. Because a lot of times when you talk about that you will confront your deeds and you will actually live your sins. You will, you will actually experience them. People tell you, well, where is the, the, the textual Dalil? And 
there are several parts of the Quran where it actually says it explicitly, among them in Surah Yunus, that you will experience what you've done. It couldn't be more direct than that. In, oh no, I don't want to uh, pause along with it because it will. But notice that the emphasis in 32 and 33 on the, 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 the contrast between Allah as al-Haqq, Allah as the truth, and what results from the truth of Allah is al-Haqq. And the interplay here between Haqq as truth and Haqq as rights. So justice itself is Haqq. Injustice can never be Haqq. So when you get the contrast, you say when Allah says, so Allah is the Haqq. And what beyond Haqq except the law, everything that's wrong? So morally, what is anchored in the side of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-haq. This is why, again, when you come and say uh, the the caretaker of the two holy sites uh, kills a journalist and they put the journalist's body in acid and make it disintegrate, and people come and say, oh, so what? Well, you know, crimes happen, or um, this is politics, or the, You're free to, 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 to play dirty politics wherever you want, but not when it comes to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Not when it comes to someone who says, I represent the two holy sites, or I can't take care of the two holy sites. Because Haq has a glaring nature, like goodness has a glaring nature. And Haq is Allah, Allah is Haq. And as proof of that, if that idea doesn't get through, look at what follows. This is in 35. Do any of those that you associate yourself with that guides you to Haq. Okay? Qul Allahu yahdi ila al-Haq. Allah guides to Haq. Afaman yahdi ila al-Haq ahaqu ayyu taba' amman la yahdi ila illa ayyuhda. Fama lakum kayfa tahkumun? So it's like saying Use your rational reasoning. How are you thinking? If the path of Allah is, can be nothing but the path of Haq. Haq, as we said, is truth, rights, justice. And what Allah guides people to 
is haq, is towards haq. So, by definition, if you construct an idea of God that leads to something other than a framework of justice and truth and rights and goodness, you've can corrupted the entire Islamic message. As this passage in Surah Yunus makes, makes plainly clear. Okay. Then, one of the most philosophically important um, ideas that Surat Yunus presents us with, without sounding philosophical at all, is look at 36. The Quran that starts with Surah Yunus, but then repeats it again several times after that. That many of those that claim to believe, which I've called the agnostics, they ultimately don't have a clear understanding. They're not anchored in a clear view of what's right and what's wrong, what's truth and what's falsehood, what's just and what's unjust. And in fact, what they, the, the, the truth of their psychology, and we'll go back again to the idea of psychology, is that they are, they waver. They have done, they, they're not committed to anything, but they, they, done is literally translates as suspicion or probability of belief. So their beliefs waver all the time. They come and they go. But why, why I said it's one of the most important philosophical concepts is that it is part of the Quran affirming the intuitive clarity of everything that is related to haq, that belief in justice belief in right and wrong, belief in moral standards are, are absolutes and demand absolute conviction. But if you, like in contrast, everything to you is relative and it depends, wasn't there a song that said a long time ago, I'm a man without conviction, I come and go? <laughs> Wasn't there? Or did I imagine it? Who's that? There is, there is. I'm trying to think of one. 
Does anyone know who was it that would say of a man without conviction, I come and go? No? I, I, maybe I'm, I, okay, so, no, but I didn't invent it. Someone used to say that, right? Yeah. Um, culture Club. Oh, Culture Club? Yeah. Did you say Culture Club? Yeah. Okay. So, this is, they, they will exemplify 36. That's my point. <laughs> Don't be like that. Do, do not be a man without conviction. You come and go. <laughs> then 37, the affirmation that, that, just, um, okay, in 37, where, I'm just going to use the translation. In the study of Quran, the Quran, 37, uh, the study of Quran says, the Quran could not have been fabricated by anyone apart from God. Fabricated means written, not in the sense of falsely invented. Okay. The Quran could not have been authored by anyone apart from God. Rather, it is a confirmation of that which came before it and an elaboration of the book in which there is no doubt from the Lord of the worlds. ما كان هذا القرآن أن يفترى من دون الله ولكن تصديق الذي بين يديه وتفصيل كل شيء وتفصيل الكتاب لا ريب فيه من رب العالمين. The the expression here تصديق الذي بين يديه. Many commentators noted the they paused at that expression because it says that it is an affirmation oh they, they translate it as a confirmation of that which came before it and an elaboration of the book but what it says is تصديق الذي بين يديه so, Tazdiq al-Lazi is an affirmation of what is between his hands. And of course, the obvious question here is, well, whose hands? And so, when you say, Tazdiq al-Lazi the Prophet did not have between his hands anything before the Quran. So, the the thing is, and that's why the, the translation is is a bit unfortunate. Is that the expression means that it is an affirmation of whatever remains of the earlier revelations, which is far more precise than saying an affirmation of earlier revelation. Is, it's like saying God recognizes that the early revelations, there is a core that remains authentic, but the rest isn't. So it's an affirmation, not of everything, but part of what, basically the, the, the authentic remnants of the earlier revelations. Um, okay. 
Then, of course, you notice 38, the famous Quranic challenges um, to the people of the time who said that the Prophet invented the Quran of saying, well, bring something like it. Um, and I think that well, we've encountered this before, so I'm not going to pause along at it, but um, it, for the context in which it was revealed, it is uh, uh, that challenge. I mean, when, when, a, when a persecuted people, there are so many things that tells you that this, this book is just not human. It, you have a persecuted people that are under an immense amount of pressure. And then when the revelation comes in the midst of those, the, the people who have power are those who are persecuting Muslims. And the people that can have the power to come up with any text and then praise it as far more eloquent than the Quran are the Qurayshis. I mean, there's nothing that prevents them from just inventing a book and then saying, oh, and then, you know, doing what, what dictators do these days. You know, they, they come up with any garbage and they propagandize it to the point that it, you know, it, everyone starts believing that it's, it's profound. The fact that the, the Quran can issue that challenge and it's as if Allah knew that that's not going to happen. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, it, it's counter what the, the processes of history. Um, okay. In 39, it says, um, Nay, but they deny that whose knowledge they cannot comprehend and whose interpretation has not yet come to them. Even so did those who were before the even so did those who were before them deny. So behold how the wrongdoers fared in in the end. The point here is that um, when it says that they deny what whose inter they deny the thing whose interpretation has not come to them. If again, if you read in the Quran carefully, you pause and you say, "Oh, what does that mean? Is it that?" If the Quran is interpreted to them, they, they would believe. This is an idiomatic type of expression. What, what it's saying is that they denied the book without even pondering what it's saying or reflecting upon what it's saying. Lam yatihun ta'wilu means that they denied it impulsively that reactively, not thinking, not, re not reflectively. They didn't even give it a chance. That's what the, this, uh, because I've seen it, uh, I mean, a lot of people seem to 
Just, um, oh, and then notice this is again one of the most one of the remarkable things about notice forty. وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ يُؤْمِنْ بِهِ وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ لَا يُؤْمِنُ بِهِ وَرَبُّكَ أَعْلَمُ بِالْمُفْسِدِينَ At this time of intense persecution, the Quran comes and says what? Some of them will believe in it and some of them will not believe in it. What do you think the reaction of the kuffar at the time was? They laughed. They said, oh, oh, some of us are going to come to believe in it? What are you talking about? Those who believe in it, so the Quran is predicting that some of the people who are current enemies of Islam will believe in it, while others will not. You know, only a God speaks this way. A God that knows that in the future, some of those same enemies are going to become believers. Um, it was met with a lot of, you know, mockery and derision, but ultimately the Quran proved to be right. Some of the very people, by the way, that mocked it, like Muawiyah, that mocked this ayah, later became Muslim. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then informs the Prophet that despite the grimness of the circumstances that he and his followers are about to confront, but it is as if saying, keep in mind that ultimately when all this is said and done, some of your enemies will in fact be become believers and some will not. And as a follow-up to that, وَإِن كَذَّبُوكَ فَقُلْ لِي عَمَلِي وَلَكُمْ عَمَلُكُمْ أَنْتُمْ بَرِئُونَ مِمَّا أَعْمَلُوا وَأَنَا بَرِئٌ مِمَّا تَعْمَلُونَ وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ يَسْتَمِعُونَ إِلَيْكَ فَأَنْتَ تُسْمِعُ الصُّمَّ وَلَوْ كَانُوا لَا يَعْقُلُونَ وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ يَنْظُرُ إِلَيْكَ أَفَأَنْتَ تَهْدِي الْعُمْيَ وَلَوْ كَانُوا لَا يبصرون. إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَظْلِمُ النَّاسَ شَيْئًا وَلَكِنَّ النَّاسَ أَنْفُسَهُمْ يَظْلِمُونَ So, this is now 41, 42, 41 and 42 and 43. So, your I distance myself. I, in fact, I am innocent of what you've done. It's not, Bari'un is, um, it's like disavow. I disavow what you do and you disavow what I do. Now, some commentators on the Quran wrongfully, in, in my opinion, said that this ayah was abrogated by the so-called sword verse verse um, that yeah. 
Of course, and I, I think that's so wrong-headed. The, 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 I mean, first, I, I don't accept abrogation of the Quran personally, but, but even if you accept abrogation of the Quran, there is nothing in later revelation that abrogates the very foundation of this idea is that, which is affirmed repeatedly by the Quran, that as you confront resistance, opposition and resistance should not affect your moral clarity. And when you are saying, I, uh, I disavow what you do and you disavow what I do, it, it, it's what? It's effectively what? It's moral clarity. It's like saying, yeah, I know that this is not your philosophy in life. I know that this is not the way that you see things, but this in no way affects me. And you must understand that ultimately, when we, can, when we meet our Lord, you're going to be saddled with your deeds and I'm going to be saddled with my deeds and I am satisfied that I am on the right course. It, it, it is not an exagger, exaggeration to say that so many believers, and I'm talking about contemporary period, so many people will, will start, um, the, the, the firmness of the, their certitude about, especially about what's wrong and right, will start be wither, withered away simply because they look around them and they see so many people who are different or who, in fact, ha do not um, agree with them. And then starts this process of, well, you know, even if they don't admit it fully to themselves, but their sense of comfort with who they are starts being chipped away. And that's, of course, the beginning of, of uh, the slide. And then here, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Prophet again at this critical juncture, and I keep reminding you of this because I'll come back to it at the end of the surah. It says, you have to understand that there are many of them who seem to be listening to you, but in fact don't hear anything. And many of them that seem to be looking at you, but in fact don't see anything. In other words, that the assumption that their positions come out of a, a, a principled disagreement is not warranted. Because a lot of them are so vested in their shuraka, in their idols. And I don't mean in the, 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 the things they, the idols, but the idols that they associate as partners with God, including their careers, their material interests, their positions, their prestige, that they, they don't hear and they don't see anything you have to offer. 
But then comes this stark reminder from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that if you, it's like saying, this is 30, uh, sorry, this is 44. It's like saying, if you truly ponder your own legacy people, what you do, you'll find that whatever injustice you suffer, whatever misery and inequity you suffer, it's not from Allah, it's from you, it's from yourselves. It's like you've created the cesspool in which you live. And because and, and the, the, the connection among, like again, you read some, in the Islamic tradition, you see some beautiful things written on, on this very concept that reminds me so much of what, you know, the whole world made such a big to-do about what Hannah Arendt said about the banality of evil. Well, you know, if you realize the Islamic tradition, the Islamic tradition said that and much more centuries before that the whole concept of hearing, but, but of lending your ear, but you don't actually hear anything, and looking but not seeing, and is the, the, um, they called it the, what would translate as the neutrality, but what they meant by it is banality, is that the, 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 the inaction and the lack of care, um, lack of determination by which people confront so much wrongdoing, so much contrary to haq, that lo and behold, they wake up one day and they found they have drifted into something extremely evil and they wonder what brought us here? How did we end up here? What, what, the, what, what made you end up here is the fact that for a long time, you refused to see and you refused to listen. You know, as a, just a short digression, in, in, in the old days, there were so many situations where uh, women, like I remember this, this woman who, uh, I think she was from Pakistan, after 30 years of marriage, her husband decided to dump her and he went to Pakistan and he married a young girl that was, I think was 18, her, he was in his 50s or 60s. And his wife was uh, never was never employed. She was a housewife, um, and of course, you know, he told her, "Oh, we we settle our property differences Islamically." And he took her to some imam, who told her, "Yes, according to the Hanafi school of fiqh, uh, you are entitled to one year of support, and that's it." After forty years of marriage. All the property is in her husband's name. She didn't save anything because she trusted her husband. And one year of support, 
and her husband goes frolics with this, you know, this woman he married from Pakistan, and he dumped us. And so, you know, I went and I was representing her and fi basically fighting for her rights. And you, the question you keep you keep getting from so many Muslims. Uh, why are you doing that? You know, why are you making it your cause? Uh, why are you going and embarrassing Muslims in courts? And and to answer, the answer is because the Quran taught me to do that. It, it is. I'm not doing that because of some secular ethic. I'm doing that because I sincerely believe that it is Allah that demands that I do that. Uh, if you don't stand up for the rights of the disempowered and the persecuted, Allah's curse will engulf you. Eventually, the, the evil that you've ignored and you failed to fight will haunt you and haunt your family. Okay, then we come to 45. This is 45. So then Allah alerts us that when we come to the hereafter, that when we recall this earthly life, it will feel as if we've just spent an hour, that this entire earthly life was in memory, will seem to be brief and illusory. Uh, think of any period in your life which at one point you thought would never end, like maybe when you were in, in school. You know, when you're in school and you're thinking of your graduation and like, oh, am I, I'm, it feels like I'm going to be in school forever. Or when you're in beginning college. Or when you're beginning your career. And then when you think afterwards, school seems like it was just a glimpse, like it all just passed. College seems like it was just, you know, just a moment in time. If you're retiring, your entire career seems like it just was nothing but a flash. And the reason I'm, I'm underscoring this is because a lot of the discourses generated around this passage was about related to the very theme of Surat Yunus, Ad-Dar, harm. So how do we understand harm? Well, if you understand harm from the perspective of the moments that you endure, then truly it will be overwhelming. 
But if you keep in mind that there will come a time where you remember all the suffering that you've endured and it will seem like it was but a moment in time, that puts things in perspective. It is the ability to look beyond the moment of suffering that will often sustain you through these moments. If you are engulfed in harm, in pain, and you are unable to look beyond it, it will drown you. But if you remind yourself firmly that it will pass, and it will indeed pass, and it will seem in comparison to have been nothing but a moment. That adjusts your attitude towards a lot. And in the case of the Sahaba, it also was very material in transforming their psychology into a sacrificial psychology into a psychology that is willing to sacrifice life for a higher attainment. And then this remarkable reminder to the Prophet ﷺ that this life is so passing and you Prophet remember that it is only up to Allah whether Allah allows you to actually see the truth of what Allah is telling you here, including everything about the nature of haqq, the nature of qadam sidq, the nature of how people relate or not relate to fear, and so on. It is either we will allow you to see this with your own eyes or, and this is to a prophet, or in fact we will not keep you around long enough to see it. So the way it translates to us is in the very nature of the demand for belief. It's, it's Allah is demanding that you believe in haqq, i.e. in ethical, normative investments, in ethical commitments, into a perception of life about what is good and what is bad, even if in your lifetime you will not necessarily see the truth of what Allah tells you is the truth. And of course, 47, I think, is apparent enough um, that I mean, the, the, there is an intense theological debate that I don't want to go to go into. The kulli ummatin rasul that every ummah has a messenger. And there is an intense theological debate as to what that means. 
because is it sufficient that that Allah sent Muhammad to humanity and that then becomes the messenger or is it those who teach on behalf of the Prophet are also the messengers to the different Ummah so and, and this, this is uh, you know that so for that it, it, it is and what happens if you don't receive notice or if you receive corrupted notice but th this is a big theological debate that will come up again in, a, in different parts of the Quran so let's postpone it to them the refrain again to the Prophet I can I don't control this is uh, 49 I don't control even as a prophet I don't control harm or good and for they, the, I, I think I mentioned this debate before that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that every ummah has a time, our human actions, do human actions negotiate the allotted time? And surprisingly, I mean, surprising for modern Muslims, most Muslim theologians said yes. So if your allotted time is that, let's say, and here, let's put allotted time for an ummah is a nation, but also for an individual. So if your allotted time is that you will die at 60, but you become a health, fanatic and you exercise left and right and so on can Allah then adjust your allotted time from 60 to 65 and most theologians contrary to what most modern Muslims believe say the answer is yes and most theologians say the reason that murder is so wrong is because it cuts your life short that actually interrupts your allotted time Uh, I, I don't know the, the shift in modern Muslim thinking um, is interesting because they, they I, I think probably part of it is that modern Muslims have felt that life is so out of control with colonialism that they more and more gravitated towards deterministic theologies, theologies that say everything is predetermined because they felt powerless and powerless people want to believe that well my powerlessness is decreed by God because it gets them off the hook um, and of course it's wrong but it's very interesting because that shift definitely happens in the colonial age okay um, 50, I'm not going to say much about that. Allah's warning that when Allah's punishment comes, uh, the only, no, actually, I, I take that back. The only thing I do want to say about it is, is uh, comes from um, some interesting uh, 
uh, ex I mean, commentaries, um, is that when things crumble, for those who seek the adornments of life, zuchruf of life, when things crumble, they crumble very quickly. And this is for nations and for individuals. That you go on in your life with the illusion of stability. Things seem stable to you. Stable, 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 year after year. And then when things fall apart, they fall apart suddenly and very quickly. Now, part of this is captured by even the human saying, when it rains, it pours. That's the saying, right? When it rains. It, it, that's precisely right, uh, but that's not a coincidence. When, when it's time for Allah to either wake you up if you're lucky, Allah is waking you up. If you're unlucky, Allah is dooming you rather than waking you up. Things turn and crumble very quickly. So you could be doing what's wrong for many years and suddenly everything that you've done wrong is being exposed and you're having legal problems and one problem after another and just everything falls apart. Um, that's the nature of, of, of the falling of darar, both for individuals and for nations. This to me is, is just one of the ayat that has always since childhood left an impact on me. 53. It just, it's such a remarkable expression. They will come and tell you, listen, is everything you're telling us the truth? And that response, it's like saying, um, yeah, I kid you not, it is the truth. It, it's, it sort of it has a, a, a little bit, it's a little bit, um, it, it, it's, it's a little bit funny, but at the same time, the most, it's like mocking them a little bit. It's like, they, you know, they, they come and say, are you, you know, really, come on, you know, level with us, tell us. Are you really telling us the truth here? And it's like saying, just look them in the eye and say, yeah, I kid you not, everything that I'm telling you is the truth. It's, um, okay. وَلَوْ أَنَّا لِكُلِّ نَفْسٍ ظَلَمَتْ مَا فِي الْأَرْضِ لَفْتَدَتْ بِهِ وَأَصَرُوا النَّدَامَةَ وَلَمَّا رَأُوا الْعَذَابَ قُضِيَ بَيْنَهُمْ بِالْقِسْطِ وَهُمْ لَا يُظْلَمُونَ This is 54. Um, don't have, okay, I don't have anything to say about 54. Um, because it's, yeah, anyway. We go to 57. يَا أَيُّهَا النَّاسُ قَدْ جَاءَتْكُمْ مَوْعِظَةٌ مِّنْ رَبِّكُمْ وَالشِّفَاءٌ لِمَا فِي الصُّدُورِ وَهُدَى وَرَحْمَةٌ لِلْمُؤْمِنِينَ قُلْ بِفَضْلِ اللَّهِ وَبِرَحْمَتِهِ فَبِذَلِكْ فَلْيَفْرَحُوا هُوَ خَيْرٌ مِّمَّا يَجْمَعُونَ
humans, there has come to you an exhortation from your Lord and a cure for that which lies within breasts and a guidance and a mercy for the believers. Say in the bounty of God and his mercy, in that let them rejoice. It is better than that which they amass. Okay. يَا أَيُّهَا النَّاسِ قَدْ جَاءَتْكُمْ مَوْعِذَةٌ مِّنْ رَبِّكُمْ So Allah is, is reminding us of the rather the obvious. This is counsel from no less than God. Okay? This is counsel. It's like saying you get confused about things. Remember, this advice that you're getting is from God, God's self. وَشِفَاءٌ لِمَا فِي الصُّدُورِ And healing, and healing for the spiritual sickness that you might suffer. And healing, indeed, even more for the psychological illness that you might suffer. Ignorance, doubt, hypocrisy, hatred. Allah is saying, if you truly understand and internalize, this is healing for your spiritual ailments and for your psychological ailments. And then in addition to this, it is guidance and mercy. So, with it is the aid, the fact that God will be with you, and that God will give you God's mercy. This is what is worthy of yafrahu, of happiness. You notice in the translation it said rejoice. Why? Because modern Muslims seem to have a problem with happiness. They think happiness is not an Islamic thing. There is nothing in Islam that says happiness is wrong. Being happy is good. But being happy, the only thing is that Islam says be happy, but with moral things, not with immoral things. And in fact, this type of happiness is خَيْرٌ مِمَّا يَجْمَعُونَ It is, that is the true wealth. That's why in Islamic societies, there is one of the you know sayings that say is that it has become part of, of colloquial parlance to say that rid nafs is the true wealth, self-happiness or self-satisfaction is the true wealth. It comes from the Qur'an. This is the way the Qur'an has impacted culture. Um, the... Fifty-nine. Allah 
أم على الله تفترون؟ This ayah which clearly first traditional tafsir tell you that what 59 is about is that the Meccans used to have many rules about that didn't make sense that they claimed came from divine sources. The, the source of these rules about, for instance, some of the rules would say that on certain days you can't key, eat the rear of a cattle. On other days, you, the, the heads of the cattle have to uh, slaughter cattle only go to the priests in the temples. On another day, you know, you have to refrain from doing this and so on and so forth. These rules were often manipulated to serve the elite. So they, they were not illogical rules, they're actually rules embedded in economic privilege. But the traditional tafsir, Surah al-Baqarah talks about these rules and talks about them explicitly. But in Surah Yunus, I don't think that that Surah, Surah Yunus is talking about, it's not talking about the laws that the Meccans have. It is talking about the principle itself, which is at the core of Surah Yunus. Is that what is the law? What is the the response of the prophet? Is that my morality doesn't come from me; it comes from a book. And here, in fifty nine, comes again the affirmation: If you, as a people, here halal and haram is is not the technicalities of the law, but it is the normative rules that guide a people. If you don't recognize that the role of the divine as an active legislator in your morality, you're in trouble. And that's قُلْ اللَّهُ أَذِنَ لَكُمْ which becomes a principle. Any time that you say something is haram, is it's as grievous as saying something is halal. But of course we know from Islamic law that everything is halal unless proven otherwise. But if Muslims understood that to say something is haram without clear evidence, or to say something is halal with evidence that it's haram, that's iftira' ala Allah. Iftira' means you are actually lying. And it's, a, it's one of the kabair, it's one of the grievous sins. If people understood that, people wouldn't be so, you know, I, I, one of the things I, I do is I stay away from social media because of the amount of haram that I see in every moron pontificating about what is halal and haram. If they understood the, the sin they are committing, 
It is not up to you to just shoot from the hip and say this is halal and haram. We come to 61. Look at the way that Surah Yunus anchors everything that will become a part of this Ummah. So, وما تكون في شأن وما تتلو منه من قرآن ولا تعملون من عمل إلا كنا عليكم شهودا استفيضون فيه وما يعذب عن ربك أم إن مثقال ذرة في الأرض ولا في السماء ولا أصغر من ذلك ولا أكبر إلا في كتاب مبين There is nothing that you do No deed even the reciting of the Quran or any other deed except we are witnessing witnesses upon you. So you are in the full sight of Allah who has perfect knowledge of all that goes on. It's like saying the obvious import is as you think about the halal and haram and as you talk about halal and haram and as you negotiate the issues of halal and haram keep fully in mind that nothing escapes God. There is no... The, so act your moral conduct should be in the full sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. أَلَا إِنَّ أَوْلِيَاءَ اللَّهِ لَا خَوْفٌ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَهُمْ يَحْزَنُونَ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَكَانُوا يَتَّقُونَ لَهُمُ الْبُشْرَ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا وَفِي الْآخِرَةِ لَا تَبْدِيلَ لِكَلِمَاتِ اللَّهِ ذَلِكَ هُوَ الْفَوْزُ الْعَظِيمِ This is now 62. أولياء الله نسيحة وصريخ Shari uh, Quran says, the friends of God. Awliya Allah, the friends of God, the um, allies of God but in this context what is useful is to go to some of the hadith that has been reported about this very ayah the Prophet when Surah Yunus was revealed he was asked who are awliyaullah that Surah Yunus is mentions. And the Prophet said, Hum They are those who when you see them, you remember Allah. 
So effectively, now, the, the, effectively they become ambassadors of Allah. Um, Elsewhere, about again Surah Yunus, the Prophet said that Awliyaullah are people whose the light of the Lord appears on their faces and who learn to love not because of a family relation and not because of a financial interest, but who love purely for the sake of Allah. Um, okay. So, for an invitation for that moral code to be translated into a status. This from this was derived the entire paradigm of a taqalluq bi khulqillah, that of reflecting the attributes of divinity in your self-conduct. A waliullah is a person who reflects the attributes of divinity, whose Allah gifts with the luminosity of divinity, whose presence reminds people of Allah, but reminds people of Allah, and as the Prophet said, that makes people love Allah. So if someone makes people dislike Allah, hate Allah, be simply in terror of Allah but not understand Allah, that's not a wali Allah. Let me reiterate this because modern Muslims really have, don't understand it. If what you do is terrify people about Allah's punishments without allowing people to understand Allah or to create the potential for loving Allah, so when people see you, they see sternness and fear. They don't see love or mercy or tenderness. You are not a waliullah. Because again, we as modern Muslims lost our way in this point, on this point, a great deal. There are so many people who think piety is to put the fear of God into people. Um, and I, I, I'll just I'll give you more on this in one second. So, 
the Prophet ﷺ is asked is asked about well if a wali Allah people see this person and they remember Allah and the Prophet ﷺ is asked to elaborate upon this. So he said that the person serves people for the sake of Allah and as a result people love that person furthermore that upon seeing this person, and I've, I think I've, I've quoted this, or a version of this somewhere else, but I don't remember where, but anyway, that upon seeing that people understand something of what it means to love Allah, it's a critical concept. In the interest of time, I will move on. Okay. The good news is that we're getting to the point where we can we can skip ahead without miss, without me cutting anything. Um, Uh, one last thing. Uh, there is a hadith where the Prophet ﷺ is asked about again Allah. So he said, "Mahabbatul nas wal zikrul hasan." That Allah is beloved by people, and when people talk about this person, they have good things to say. Look at the, 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 the remark it's 65. And then it's like, it's like after the, all of these high principles, it comes back and talks to the Prophet, but also talks to all those who walk in the Prophet's footsteps and says, Don't be sad at what they say, because Allah knows that those who walk this path, what their fate is going to be. Because they will often try with what they say to humiliate you, to make you feel lowly. But understand that all honor, all true pride belongs only to Allah. Don't have much to say about 66 and 67. These are the ayat that. Oh yeah. Then uh, the only thing about sixty-eight. Um, it's rather interesting that right after the Isra, and again before we go to Medina, the Quran is meticulous 
upon the moral fallacy of attributing any human causality to God subhanahu wa ta'ala, and we've talked about this, is that if you imagine that this God needs to have a son or needs to have daughters who are angels, then the entire system of belief where, and if, if I just recall what we said before, I'm talking about 68. Is that then Allah becomes subject to the laws of causality. And if Allah becomes subject to the laws of causality, then it is only a matter of time that you will project upon God your human frailties and sanctify them. So in other words, you will end up worshipping yourselves in the, in the form of God. Um, yeah, there is when the Prophet is um, there is a hadith where the Prophet is asked about verse 69 and 70. It's interesting. The Prophet said, Al-Khalq and the Prophet says humans are God's children and the most beloved to God among his children is the are the children who benefit God's children. So the most beloved upon you is that who serves people the most. Now, they, 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 there is an important thing about this, but it's a little bit scholarly, but it's, um, in that the Bible uses the old Aramaic and Hebrew system of referring to God's creatures as the children of God. And the, the, that's a common reference, the, child, the children of God, the child of God, and Jesus is the child of God, like human beings are the children of God. But that expression was corrupted when Christianity was Romanized, when the children of God became something other than the idiomatic children of God in, in Aramaic and in Hebrew. And when the Prophet ﷺ comments here that Al-Khalq the Prophet is reclaiming that usage by, effect, by in, in effect saying, this is not what the Quran is talking about. It is, we are figuratively the children of God. That's a world of difference than saying a child of God is, is divine.
Okay. So now we come to. So after this substantial introduction, which inshallah we will come back, to, which I will summarize, we come to Surat Yunus. mentioning certain prophets. And as we know that it will mention Nuh, Musa and his brother, and finally Yunus. And when it starts out with Prophet Nuh, it presents a very dramatic picture of the harm that is confronting Prophet Nuh. So Nuh is standing among his people, calling upon the, advocating the message. But then he tells them, Ya qawmi, إن كان كبر عليكم مقامي وتذكيري بآيات الله فعلى الله توكلت فاجمعوا أمركم وشركاءكم ثم لا يكن أمركم عليكم غمة ثم اقضوا إلي ولا تنظرون فإن توليتم فما سألتكم من أجر إن أجري إلا على الله وأمرت أن أكون من المسلمين so what he is saying to them is, I know I have been advocating the message for a long time among you. If you, is like saying, if you find me so annoying, if you find me if you are burdened by my presence, if you find me so intolerable, you can't tolerate me anymore. And as we said before, what did Nuh's people do to him? They would regularly beat him up, often tie him in sacks and throw him in garbage piles. And so he comes and tells them something that's rather surprising and it, and it caught Muslims at the time of the Prophet they took note of that. He says, فَجْمِعُوا أَمْرَكُمْ وَشُرَكَاءَكُمْ ثُمَّ لَا يَكُنْ أَمْرُكُمْ عَلَيْكُمْ غُمَّ ثُمَّ أَقْدُوا إِلَيَّ وَلَا تُنْزَرُونَ Okay, so if you can't put up with me anymore, you know what? Go ahead, make up your mind, and do me in. So it's a, it's a challenge where Nuh is basically saying, I'm not going to run away and I'm not going to sugarcoat anything. I'm going to tell you that if you are determined to harm me, then go ahead, do it. 
But keep in mind that I've never demanded anything from you. I never wanted anything for myself. And I've always wanted nothing but what is good for you. Now, quickly in Surah Yunus, after drawing that picture in our mind, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just moves on to say, So we, in fact, saved Nuh and those with him, and we've destroyed the others. Then it says, ثُمَّ بَعَثْنَا مِنْ بَعْدِهِ رُسُلًا إِلَىٰ قَوْمِهِمْ فَجَاءُونَ بِالْبَيِّنَاتِ فَمَا كَانُوا لِيُؤْمِنُوا بِمَا كَذَّبُوا بِهِ مِنْ قَبْلِ كَذَلِكَ نَطْبَعُوا عَلَىٰ قُلُوبِ الْمُعْتَدِينَ There were several generations of messengers who were also rejected and turned away. We notice about Nuh is that Nuh is being hurt he meets this hurt with defiance. The ultimate result is Allah gave not victory to Nuh, but Allah destroyed Nuh's enemies. And what happens after the destruction of Nuh's enemies, we, we're not given details, but we're simply moved on to in the narrative to Musa and Harun. And with Musa and Harun, we are told that they are sent to Fir'aun wa Qawmih, to the people of the Pharaoh, and wa Mala'i. And that Fir'aun and his people were arrogant, high and mighty, uh, high and mighty. And they were, as a result, Mujrimin. Mujrimin meaning criminals, offenders, immoral. And their stubbornness is that regardless of what Musa and Harun present them, presented them with, they simply dismissed it and waved it away as anything but the truth, whether it's sorcery or whatever. And they say, we have a settled way of life and we will not respond to anything that you tell us. Okay. Just as a, as a quick note, 81, verse 81, this becomes in a lot of Rukiyas, this verse is recited. فَلَمَّا أَلْقَوْ قَالَ مُوسَىٰ مَا جِئْتُمْ بِهِ السِّحْرَىٰ إِنَّ اللَّهَ سَيُطُلُهُ إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَلَا يُصْلِحُ عَمَلَ الْمُفْسِدِينَ That when the, when the magicians did whatever they did, Musa tells them, whatever magic you attempt, Allah will, will invalidate it or void it. 
in Ruqiyas, they recite this verse so that the meaning is whatever demons do, Allah can, uh, can invalidate it or void it. Uh, just as a footnote. And Allah supports the truth with words, even if the wrongdoers do not approve or oppose. Okay. So, the dynamic between Musa and Fir'aun and his people, the Qur'an comments in 83, فَمَا آمَنَ لِمُوسَى إِلَّا ذُرِّيَّةٌ مِّنْ قَوْمِهِ عَلَىٰ خَوْفٍ مِّنْ فِرْعَوْنَ وَمَلَئِيهِمْ أَنْ يَفْتِنَهُمْ وَإِنَّ فِرْعَوْنَ لَعَالٍ فِي الْأَرْضِ وَإِنَّهُ لَمِنَ الْمُسْرِفِينَ So, who followed Musa? The Quran underscores that the people who followed Musa, in a word, were severely traumatized and fearful people. Some of some Egyptians followed Musa, a small number. Uh, but whether the Egyptians or the Israelites that followed Musa, they were in absolute fear of the Pharaoh and they were secretive. They followed him. They believed in him secretly, not openly. So Musa says, يا قومي إن كنتم آمنتم بالله فعليه توكلوا إن كنتم مسلمين فقالوا على الله توكلنا ربنا لا تجعلنا فتنة للقوم الظالمين ونجنا برحمتك من القوم الكافرين So they, their initial reaction is to follow Musa but to do so secretly and not to defy the Pharaoh and his people openly. And the Quran says, underscores time and time again that that oppressive paradigm represented in the Pharaoh and his people are because uh, they are arrogant, they are and they are corruptors, mufsideen. It's like saying, there's no more, more, more obvious way of saying that they are morally bankrupt. And they're morally bankrupt because they think that they are higher than the rest, than other human beings and they're entitled to oppress and dominate other human beings. So, Musa tells his people, you have to rely on Allah, if you are Muslims, rely on Allah, on Allah, meaning confront this oppression openly. And their response is, فَقَالُوا عَلَى اللَّهِ تَوْكَنَّا So we rely on God. 
ربنا لا تجعلنا فتنة للقوم الظالمين. This is 85. So let's see how the so the Quran translates 85. 85. Um, and they said, in God we trust. Make us not a temptation for the wrongdoing people. Okay, but what does that mean? How can they become, the oppressed become a temptation for the wrongdoing people? That's the obvious question. Well, wrongdoing people, when they oppress a people with a mission, Wrongdoing people start believing that If these people were indeed, if they had, if their cause was truthful, we would not have been able to oppress them. In the dynamics of despotism and oppression, this is absolutely true. I heard the, the modern pharaoh who rules Egypt, the, the tyrant in Egypt say, Allah must be with us because if we, if Allah wasn't with us, we wouldn't have been victorious. That's precisely the type of fitna that the Quran is talking about. Subhanallah. It's precisely the type of fitna. You take a people, you jail them, you torture them, you kill them, and you think, well, it must be that because Allah allows me to do it, then it must be that I'm right. So it's a remarkable, amazing prayer. The people that followed Moses are first do so in secret. Musa tells them, Rely on God, meaning publicize your, your, your belief. We, it's time we go and open. They do so, and the, what they recognize is now that the oppression will escalate, but in the oppressor, in fact oppressing, is the moral doom of the oppressor. So, وَأَوْحَيْنَا إِلَى مُوسَى وَأَخِيهِ أَنْ تَبَوَّأَ لِقَوْمِكُمَا بِيُوتًا وَاجْعَلُوا بِيُوتَكُمْ قِبْلَةً وَأَقِيمُوا الصَّلَاةَ وَبَشِّرُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ This is 87. What it's saying is, because I'm sure if you read it in the translation, you're not going to get what it's saying, is that we then told the followers of Moses, they're unable to build places of worship because the Egyptians will not allow them. The Pharaoh and his, turn your homes into places of worship. Okay. So, وَقَالَ مُوسَى رَبَّنَا إِنَّكَ أَتَيْتَ فِرْعَوْنَ وَمَلَأَهُ زِينَةً وَأَمْوَالًا فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا رَبَّنَا لِيُضِلُّوا عَنْ سَبِيلَكَ رَبَّنَا اطْمِسْ عَلَى أَمْوَالِهِمْ وَاشْدُدْ عَلَى قُلُوبِهِمْ فَلَا يُؤْمِنُوا حَتَّى يَرَوْا الْعَذَابَ الْأَلِيمِ 
قال قد أجيبت دعوتكما فاستقيما ولا تتبعان سبيل الذين لا يعلمون So Musa السلام, says God you've given Fir'aun all this power all this money and all this power but what is it that they do with all this money and all this power they spread corruption they spread injustice they are as far away from haq as you can and at that point musa prays to allah for the destruction of Fir'aun. and allah responds and says your prayer has been has been answered fastaqima وَلَا تَتَّبِعَانِ سَبِيلَ الَّذِينَ لَا يَعْلَمُونَ This is 89. Your prayer has been answered, so stand استقيمة, stand firm, and follow not the way of those who know not. So what is it talking about here? Your prayer has been answered. But hold steadfast and go, go astray. And you might say, well, wait, your prayer has been answered. So why would Allah tell them hold steadfast and don't go astray? Until you remember something really important. Noah prayed a similar prayer, right? And Allah told Noah, I'm going to answer your prayer, or I've answered, your prayer has been accepted. But how much time passed between Allah answering the prayer and the actual effects of the flood? It wasn't immediate. Some say 40 years, some say 80 years, some say 150 years. How about Musa? Allah says, your prayer has been accepted. But between the acceptance of Musa's prayer and the drowning of Pharaoh's forces, 40 years passed. So in other words, you see, that is the problem. You could be doing du'a and Allah would in fact answer your du'a but Allah answers it on Allah's time, not your time. So you could be expecting the results a week from now, two weeks from now. And if you don't get it, you say Allah hasn't answered my du'a. But this is the biggest fallacy, especially for people who are about to establish an entire Islamic Ummah. It cannot be on your time. Noah waited decades, if not centuries. Musa waited 40 years. And 
we are then told that when the forces of the Pharaoh, when the time of calamity, the time of drowning comes, this is of course in 90 and 91 and 92. At that point, Pharaoh say, sees the disaster and Pharaoh says, I want to believe. And Allah's response is, too late. There is some hadith that's unreliable and I wish that, we, that people would stop teaching this hadith to our children that the angels came to the Pharaoh and was stuffing mud in his mouth so he can't say the shahada before he dies. It's not reliable and unfortunately people continue teach, teaching. Um, but what is, but as a side note, notice in 92 that w your body is saved. The saving of the body of the Pharaoh is very interesting. Um, this is a sidebar, but I think it's an important one. I was, um, in the good old days, I was uh, visiting Egypt as a guest. I was actually, I was visiting Egypt on a diplomatic passport. I had an American diplomatic passport, and so I was getting the, the royal treatment, of course. Um, and so I was visiting the American, um, I was visiting the, the, um, the, the museum and the, I was getting the royal tour of the museum and then we come to um, one of the corps and make a long story short, I was really surprised that the, our guide was under instructions by the then the minister of Egyptian artifacts not to say that this was the corpse of, or that at least some scholars say that this is the corpse of Pharaoh, uh, which has been saved. And I was very surprised because the, they were under orders from high above to secularize and not have any religious Islamic references when they talk about Egyptian artifacts, whether they have to do with Moses or Yusuf or, and then I learned later on that there was orders to rehabilitate the term Fir'aun from the Quranic connotation of an oppressive ruler, the Pharaoh, to something good. Uh, bizarre. Um, but the, the body of the, the Pharaoh has survived, as the Quran says. Okay, so, so take notice, so we have people of Noah, where Noah challenges them, and ultimately God's punishment comes. 
the people of Musa and Harun and the punishment eventually comes but when it comes it's too late to go back then we come to Yunus which is the last example of Surah Yunus Uh, be, before we do that, uh, notice 94. فَإِن كُنْتَ فِي شَكٍ مِمَّا أَنْزَلْنَا إِلَيْكَ فَاسْأَلِ الَّذِينَ يَقْرَؤُونَ الْكِتَابَ مِنْ قَبْلِكَ لَقَدْ جَاءَكَ الْحَقُّ مِنْ رَبِّكَ فَلَا تَكُونَنَّ مِنَ الْمُنْتَرِينَ وَلَا تَكُونَنَّ مِنَ الَّذِينَ كَذَّبُوا بِآيَاتِ اللَّهِ فَتَكُونَ مِنَ الْخَاسِرِينَ 94 and 95 says, if you are in doubt about what has been sent to you, ask those who study the book before you. Who is it talking to? You see, this gave pause to Muslim theologians because some said, well, it's talking to the Prophet, Others said, but that's impossible. How could it be saying to the Prophet if you're in doubt about the revelation that we sent you Go ask those who studied the book before you. It wouldn't make sense. And would it make sense for the, for the Prophet to be addressed with Don't be among those who disbelieve in God's ayat so then you become among the lost. I, I, I am among those who believe that most certainly it's not talking to the Prophet. It is talking to the followers of the Prophet. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot 93. So ultimately, Bani Israel were given Allah's favor. But Allah alerts us to the sunnah of Allah's creation that after they become settled, after they gained a level of stability, differences and disagreements crept in between them. Disagreements, you will not be able to make human beings homogeneous no matter what you do. And as the Kawakabi said, so the smart, smart people would figure out a way procedurally not to resolve differences, but to navigate differences. Because differences will remain forever until we meet our Lord. It is how to live with our differences, not how to resolve our differences. Resolving our differences will not happen. We will never be copies of one another. But it is how to negotiate these differences so that they don't hamper us, 
and they don't take us away from the past of Al-Haq. Okay. Okay, so then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes and tells us this is an old story. So many people received the message and so many people failed to heed the message. And so many people would only heed the message when harm would befall them, but then it's too late except for the people of Yunus. This is 98. Except for the people of Yunus, and it doesn't give us details about the people of Yunus, other than telling us that they were the exception. Well, we know from elsewhere, from the Quran, that Yunus tries with his people, tries very hard, they reject him, so he tells them, okay, that's it, you're doomed. And he leaves them. And he gives up, he says, okay, you're doomed. But the people of Yunus, when they see the dark clouds gathering in the sky. They see the signs of doom. So there is a hadith where the people go and they tell the Prophet what did the people of Yunus do when they saw the signs of doom? So the Prophet says, رد المظالم حتى أن الرجل كان يقتلع الحجر وقد وضع عليه أساس بيته. That the Prophet said that when they saw the signs of doom, not only did they repent, but they addressed the injustices that had that they had committed, so much so that we are given an exaggerated picture of it, that if a man had stolen a brick and built his house upon this brick, that man would tear down his house to return the stolen brick. And only because of that, God saved him. Now, we know at the same time that Yunus was punished, السلام, because he gave up. And that once he returned, he found that his people have in fact not just repented, but have turned their life from a life of just injustice to a life of justice. So just keep this in mind. Okay? 
then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at this point comes and says وَلَوْ شَاءَ رَبُّكَ لَآمَنَ مَنْ فِي الْأَرْضِ كُلُّهُمْ جَمِيعًا أَفَأَنْتَ تُكْرِهِ النَّاسَ حَتَّى يَكُونُوا مُؤْمِنِينَ وَمَا كَانَ لِنَفْسٍ أَنْ تُؤْمِنَ إِلَّا بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ وَيَجْعَلُوا الرِّسَّ عَلَى الَّذِينَ لَا يَعْقِلُونَ Okay, so if Allah would have willed everyone on this earth would have believed. So do you think you have the right to compel people to believe? And understand that not only that, but no one believes unless Allah gives permission for them to believe. Why wouldn't God give permission to someone not to, to believe? Because they don't reason. La yaqilun. And because they don't reason, a riz is like, so they are tarred by wrongfulness. By, a riz is like defilement. It's like their lack of reason defiles them. After this journey, look at the closing ayat of Surah Yunus. قُلْ انْظُرُوا مَاذَا فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَمَا تُغْنِي الْآيَاتُ وَالْنُّذُرُ عَنْ قَوْمٍ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ This is 101. فَهَلْ يَنْظُرُونَ إِلَّا مِثْلِ أَيَّامِ الَّذِينَ خَلَوْا مِنْ قَبْلِهِمْ قُلْ انْتَظِرُوا إِنِّي مَعْكُمْ مِنَ الْمُنْتَظِرِينَ reflect upon creation. Ultimately, it's the same saga. Morality, what is right, what is truth, is conveyed to you in words. Most of the time, people do not eat. But it is the same dynamic, ultimately, every time. فَانْتَظِرُوا إِنِّي مَعَكُمْ مِنَ الْمُنْتَظِرِينَ Wait. Wait. You wait because I wait with you. ثُمَّ نُنْجِي رُسُولُنَا ثُمَّ نُنْجِي رُسُولُنَا وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا كَذَلِكَ حَقًّا عَلَيْنَا نُنْجِي الْمُؤْمِنِينَ now this gave pause to Muslim theologians because it says we ultimately save our prophets and those who believe. And Allah takes a vow to nunjil mu'mineen, to save those who believe.
Now, save doesn't mean worldly power. Save is on Allah's terms, not yours. قل يا أيها الناس إن كنتم في شك من ديني فلا أعبد الذين تعبدون من دون الله ولكن أعبد الله الذي يتوفاكم وأمرت أن أكون من المؤمنين ونقم وجهك للدين حنيفا ولا تكونن من المشركين ولا تدعو مع الله ولا تدعو من دون الله ما لا ينفعك ولا يضرك فإن فعلت فإنك إذا من الظالمين وإن يمسسك الله بضر فلا كاشف له إلا هو وإن يرك بخير فلا راد لفضله يصيب به من يشاء من عباده وهو الغفور الرحيم قل يا أيها الناس قد جاءكم الحق من ربكم فمن اهتدى فإنما يهتدي لنفسه ومن ضل فإنما يضل عليها وما أنا عليكم بوكيل واتبع ما يوحى إليك واصبر حتى يحكم الله وهو خير الحاكمين So from one or four to the end of the surah The message is to turn profoundly and with complete commitment towards Allah and not to make your commitment towards Allah uh, for this commitment to be without weakness and to be to internalize a very difficult idea that harm whatever harm befalls you if Allah didn't want it to befall you it wouldn't befall you and whatever good that comes to you, comes to you because Allah wanted to come to you. And that ultimately, if you are guided, if you follow the truth, it is for your own good. And if you miss the truth, then you only hurt yourself. And the core message at the very end is sabr, is endurance and patience before the inescapable truth of Allah's hook. So you pause here and you say, wait, where did Surah Yunus then take us? I told you that there is a continuation with Surah Hud and Surah Yusuf. But let's take
take the position of those who received Surah Yunus and had not received Surah Hud or Surah Yusuf yet. And those who received Surah Yunus at that point would understand that Allah is clearly drawing the line as to those who are um, uh, as to those who are uh, what is the expression um, flighty in their belief those who when they are harmed they drift away and when things are going well they're all full about full of talk about how they know God and God knows them and they are wonderful with God and they are at peace with God but when hardship comes that's when they get confused after the Isra and with what Muslims are going to face these are not the believers that can build an Islam the believers that will build an Islam have to be have to be firm in their understanding that this is a religion about al-haq and qadr masidq indallah that you are going to stand on truth and haq with all that haq entails and that the trajectory of the way human beings are is that those who truly stand as God's people, as awliyaullah, as the friends of God, are a minority. But they are the ones that make all the difference. They're the ones that induce change. Although the majority can be influenced, but it is critical that that minority itself not be confused about its moral standards because of all the pluralism and diversity that they witness. If they are among those that say, well, you know, there's so many people, they all have different beliefs, so who knows, who can tell what's right and wrong? You're in trouble. That's not going to work. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes and picks three models. The society of Noah is a society drowning in injustice. So unjust that for centuries, this is the, 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 uh, the with their continuous 
and the, the way they treat Nuh and his followers is with persistent oppression. But the attitude that the Quran demands of in the in the um, through Noah is an attitude of defiance. When it comes to Musa, another unjust society, they refuse to do every time Allah tests them with one of the plagues. Even when they say they're going to change, they go back and they stick to their way of living. And their way of living is full of injustice. There is a point upon which the gavel falls upon injustice and there is no way going back. It's like saying, you know, it's not the case that you can change it anytime. But again, for the, for the injustice to the, the way that Allah could demanded that the injustice be confronted is again with confrontation and with sacrifice. Then you come to the people of Yunus, which is endlessly fascinating. Because the people of Yunus corrected their path and addressed the injustices even after their leader abandoned them. And then it strikes you that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the believers, you see this prophet between you? Either he's going to live long enough so he will see the difference, or he might not. Now, I'll tell you what I believe Allah is saying in this. Allah is not going to aid a people, a people unless they themselves deserve to be aided not because of their prophet but because of them if the only reason you are doing right is because of the charismatic leadership of your prophet you don't deserve Allah's support But if you have truly understood what al-haq means, then you deserve Allah's support. And the later revelation of Hud and Yusuf will, will, will bail this out completely. Surah Yunus,
the reason that so many we have so many hadiths that are reported about Surah Yunus is that Muslims after the Isra, when Surah Yunus came, they rushed to the Prophet time and time again and said, so we must become awliyaullah. We must, in the midst of this persecution, the issue is not hating our persecutors. The issue is cleansing ourselves until in the midst of all this misery, people would see us, they would fall in love with Allah. And if you would have heard the answer of the Prophet, which is yes, you would say, well, wait, but that's so unfair until you remember something. This is how Islam spread in Abyssinia. If the people that went to Abyssinia were angry and vindictive and full of venom and hate, if the Muslims that went to Medina were full of hate and venom, we are here so we can get these Meccans and butcher them, the Medinians wouldn't have converted. It is because when they saw Muslims, they saw Allah, is why they converted. Is it miraculous? Yes, but Allah tells us, hey, the people of Yunus are the exception. But you have no choice but try to be the exception. So that if you fail, at least it's not your fault. So at least you can tell Allah, well, we failed, but, my, but it wasn't me. I, I walked the path of Waliullah. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. And that is Surah Yunus. Okay, I feel like I'm, I'm about to cry. Um, I feel like I understand from what you said. You know, I, people who are not here with us um, and don't necessarily see what's happening. Um, you know, I think I, I may have said in the past that like there's so much learning here, but we here are blessed that oftentimes what we receive and learn in, in the halakha at the moment is addressing something that we are going through at this moment in time here. And it's like, I need a moment to process it, but I feel like now after you finished, I understand why it's been so difficult, um, why you've been going through so much pain um, and there's just so many lessons to be learned and maybe we can share. But anyway, thank you. Um, may Allah bless you. Alhamdulillah, truly, like, I'm so grateful to God for everything that we just received. Um, and may Allah help us truly internalize these lessons and change our lives um, more than they already have been. So, alhamdulillah, thank you. Um, and for all the suffering that you went through, this was, it became clear why. Um, 
So let's take a moment. I know it's Maghrib. I don't know if you want to pray Maghrib now or if you want to take a break. Okay, so let's take a break to pray Maghrib and then go ahead and please collect your questions. Any questions you have, send them through the chat. Um, and then we will come back for a Q&A, inshallah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, we are going to try, I think because um, Sheikh is still recovering, we're going to try and do a shortened Q&A and let's just kind of see how it goes. I know this was an incredible surah and people have probably a lot of really amazing questions to go with it, but just so we're going to try and go about 30 minutes. Um, I just, I, I wanted to just say very briefly that I think this surah is, there's so much gold in it. It's just, you know, hard to put it all together, but what a, what an incredible message of empowerment. I mean, it's, it's like the idea that to think of yourself as being a friend of God and someone who invites people to Islam just from your very persona, the way you, you act, the way you speak, the way you shine light from your face. It's something extremely tangible um, that you can wrap your head around because we've all met people that are like that, that you meet them and you just feel peace and light and um, it's, it's an incredible idea to aspire for and to hope for. Um, and when I put that together also with the idea that you know God is with the you know communities or countries that are just i mean in our world today it seems like there really is no world there's no place that is just and so it feels like it falls then the responsibility falls much more to the individual to develop within themselves that that you know beauty and light and maybe we define communities in a different way like where can people be um, able to gather and, and produce more good, which again underscores the responsibility of those in, for example, Western countries where they have the freedom to come together and effect more change than in other places. So, um, but you know, ultimately, and again, even the message of you know, this is something that you have to achieve on your own, separate from whatever charismatic leader you have, whatever profit you might have. It really focuses on. Individual and what an amazing message of empowerment. So, just thought I would add my two cents and say thank you so much because it's just truly beautiful and amazing. Um, anybody want to start off? <laughs> I know we had some questions here. Joe, you're back from the UK. <laughs> Welcome. So, you get to leave. You need to process still? Okay. Who else? Okay. Bravery. <laughs> um, in, in verse 47, the one that the, for each community a messenger will be sent, is, can you interpret that within the lens of if, you, if each person is like their own ummah, that it's not just speaking in terms of prophets or messengers in, in the sense of a prophet, but that it is. Um, a guarantee that in any situation there there will be guidance. You're guaranteed that there's going to be some sign that there's some some form of guidance. You're never going to be left in the dark. Um. Look, yeah, I. I 
I mean, she was saying, that, can can that 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 for every ummah is a rasul? Can that be read as a that there is a guarantee of some form of guidance for every situation? The the reason I pass is the only thing that I the in especially in the Sufi tradition the the way that they um, well in, in two parts the um, the rationalists especially the Mu'tazila um, read this in they believe that the intellect is God's messenger and that. Um, uh, and their emphasis w was so much on flawed thinking. And by flawed thinking, they believed that, for instance, um, the failure to see justice is when it's because you allow various emotions to come in to cloud what reason would tell you is justice. Uh, so, you know, for the, the, when, if, you, if justice requires that you, um, you know, it's very simple, you put yourself in the other person's shoes and you ask yourself, you know, is this a treatment that I would, would want to, to receive? And um, the, the Sufi tradition tended to see that Rasul is the innate fitra within, and that, that, that is a constant Rasul, that, um, that people who that it is accumulation of sin that uh, that that kills off that fitra or that clouds it or buries it, but that um, the and it's, they they often comment about this in the context of Surah Yunus that the nature of harm or pain or suffering is that it often removes the, the um, uh, all that accumulates on the fitrah, that suffering is an opportunity to, to go back to your fitrah and to ask yourself innately. Now, of course, um, my, I tend I mean, I, I agree with that both reason and fitra are Muslim, that they are. But I see that it is all within the context of Allah's perfect justice. That Allah knows more than, better than any of us uh, what socialization does, you know, and so, and what the impacts of socialization is. Um, and that what becomes reasonable for the fitra to access in, in light of 
the various social contexts that we exist in and what is and what becomes reasonable for reason to access. Um, now, whether I'm not sure about guidance in every situation, but I mean, because that that brings a different matter. I mean, Allah sends constant signs, and a person who is alert will constantly see this. Will see the signs that Allah sends, and Allah doesn't condemn a human being without there being constant ample opportunity. And if there is no ample opportunity, then there will be no condemnation. Uh, in that sense, I would understand the, the whole point about message. Um, yeah. You had mentioned that murder was considered particularly heinous because it alters allotment, as I assume is suicide. And yet I'm wondering if it seems as if Allah's plan is spoiled by saying that a human would interfere in the original lifespan a person was destined to have. I hope this question makes sense. I guess I'm wondering about the predetermined aspect, not already including evil. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, um, the, there's... Um, You know, there is uh, there's a difference between Allah's knowledge, which is perfect, and Allah's fate. Um, the and this way that I I I think that I, I, of all the various debates that go on about there, there's you know there are of course those who believe that from the time of birth there are certain things that are predetermined and they don't waver they're 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 set in stone in other words and um, and then those who believe that. Uh, your fate is like a set of conditionals so that um, of course for some it might be that Allah you know if Allah says that your life is going to end on such and such moment your life will end at such and there is there is nothing that can uh, change that but that fate is often determined by Allah in terms of conditionals, meaning if that happens, then your fate will be X. If this happens, then, or, you know, if this is the decision that your fate is this, if this is the decision, then your fate is that. Um, it's like, um, you know, if, 
if you smoke, then your death will be on this date. But if you don't smoke, your death will be on that date. Both are Allah's will and both are Allah's fate. Uh, the murder issue is the one that has uh, some in very interesting debates. Is it, of course, Allah can, can prevent any murder, Allah wills. I mean, so nothing happens outside of Allah's uh, um, willpower. It's Allah that wills it to go ahead. But that if Allah wills for someone, if Allah says, if you are not murdered, you will live till 70. But if such and such person comes along and murders you, makes the wrong decisions and murders you, you will live till 50. Um, both are Allah's fate, but still, the person who murdered you robbed you of the alternative fate. And, and that's what they mean by this whole discussion when, when the theologians that talked about um, murder as, you know, they don't mean that someone shortchanges what Allah decreed because both of them are Allah's destiny. But the, the punishment is for, for intervening to prevent the occurrence of the more generous destiny. That, that's the way it's usually, with, with a lot of variations on, you know, I'm not, personally, I'm not sure about the, the murder thing. I mean, I don't feel strongly one way or the other about it. Um, but I do I believe that Allah's fate is set in terms of conditionals. It, if you exercise certain choices, your fate goes one way. If you exercise other choices, your fate goes another way. Um, and it's all within the realm of, and it's subhanAllah in the modern mind, I mean, when we see computer programming, we, we ought to be able to understand that better than even the earlier people. Uh, it's all within the, you know, what the computer programmer programmed. All of the all of the endless choices that end up unfolding, but they depend on on the interaction in the interactive agent. Um, you know, you you can't ever assume that there is really true autonomy in a computer program, but there is a certain level of autonomy. Thank you. Okay, this is from Kothar. Um, how does one know when their idea of ethics and justice is rooted in divine commandments? Many Muslims claim their sexism or racism are rooted in Islam or claim treating people one way or another are rooted in Islam, um, then use scripture to defend it. How does one filter out the noise and know when this eth idea of ethics is truly rooted in Islam and when one is using Islam as a scapegoat to sugarcoat one's lack of <coughs> ethics and morality? often citing um, Baqarah 2.16 and telling those who struggle that they should not struggle since that is just quote-unquote worldly desires. For example, can one think something is unjust but it is just, or can someone believe something is just when it's unjust? How do you discern between the two to remain on the right path? 
Well, you know, of course, there is no, no such thing as as perfect thought. We, but um, but it is if I mean, and this this is in in part what the uh, what education can yield because um, proper moral education is critical. So, you know, you take a concept like Ihsan, okay, and there is so much that the Prophet ﷺ said about the concept of Ihsan. And if you take everything that the Prophet ﷺ said about the concept of Ihsan, it, it, it is always what, what becomes very clear, it is like, it, it is always, choosing what can be comprehended by people at a particular time and place as the most merciful, the most compassionate, the most beautiful. So someone comes and says, I will do X. And X is Ihsan, not according to what people understand in this time and place, but according to what people understood a thousand years ago or 1400 years ago. What they don't recognize is that they are committing a clear methodological error in moral thinking. But it is because the way we educate people, we, we don't educate people on morality at all in, in, in modern Islam. So they think oh, uh, that the technicalities of the law or the positive legal commandment can in fact define the moral principles. And that's again a, a, a methodological error. The moral principles are the ones that are supposed to interrogate and revise and reform the positive legal commandments. So, you know, take, uh, if we take an example of I don't know what what, uh, what what would be considered in your mind like. Um, um, take um, uh, um, let, let's take something like the position of woman in prayer. And you come and say, well, the ihsan is the definition of ihsan and rahma and qist is for women to know their place in the mosque is this and the, in the home is that and in the whatever is this. Well, according to what theory of Rahmah and what theory of cost and what theory of Ihsan and say theory, are there theories? You have to have a clear conception of what it is. And if in the day and age in which you live, this does not translate into rahmah 
or Ihsan or Qist, then you have a serious flaw and a serious problem. If what I do today makes a woman feel humiliated rather than dignified, the law is not, the law cannot command the woman or a woman to change her psychology. That is not the function of the law. The law is not a psychologist. The law is not what is supposed to define the emphasis. What defines the emphasis are the, the first principles of Tawheed and the first principles of Akhlaq. So it is the relationship of a human being to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that defines the emphasis. The, the emphasis is the, 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 the self. So the problem that you encounter in modern Islam all the time is that we open up medieval texts that have medieval laws and what, by doing so and then we, we have these medieval laws tell us what is correct behavior and what is incorrect behavior. And what we end up doing then is the laws end up defining the moral principles. The laws end up defining what is Ahma, what is Ihsan, what is Qist, what is Affa, what is all of it. But when you do that, you kill the concept because the concept itself ends up being uh, the prisoner of the positive legal commandment. The positive legal commandment itself came out of the intellect of someone who lived centuries ago who studied the concept of Rahma and Ihsan and Qist and whatever at their time and interacted with that concept and the text to produce a positive legal commandment. We are not interacting with anything. We're just taking the legal commandment and basically skipping over that process that Allah through the Quran told us is imperative. And that is to bring our to bring our Iman, to bring the concepts which is the, 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 the divine attributes to bring the Anfus and the divine attributes together and then to search for the law. But we are intellectually lazy. We, we don't bother with any of that anymore. And as a result, modern Muslims, if you, I mean, the most remarkable, there was a, a person um, a few years ago, was a very smart uh, guy who did a PhD, uh, I don't remember, I think it was Oxford. I don't remember. He did something very smart. He, he, um, uh, he was a psychology major, or his doctorate. And he had the, this test that he asked a whole group of Muslims, um, uh, do you believe um, uh, Islam is the religion of mercy? Yes. Do you believe is, uh, Sharia is justice? Yes. Do you, you know, all, all the right responses. Then he had a 
it, some monitor that detected um, something like detected lice. And then he compared the conscious responses to the emotive responses. So he would say the same question, but then now he's reading their biological reaction rather than their intellectual reaction. And when I read his dissertation, the disparity between the two was shocking. It actually gave me sleepless nights. So do you believe Islam is a religion of mercy? The, the, the official response is yes. But then the emotive response shows that you're full of doubt. Do you believe that Islam is the religion of justice? The official response is yes. The emotive response, full of doubt. And he, in part of his study, is that he compared different religious groups. And the most schizophrenic group of all the religious groups were Muslims. I don't know if he ever published the dissertation. I really wanted him to publish it. He was afraid to do that because, but it, it speaks volumes. It, it, it tells you that we don't ask the hard questions so that we start the inner cleansing because we don't even ask the hard questions about if, if, if all of us, including me, including me, I would be terrified to even ask a question about the place of women in prayer. If we're at that level, that's horrific. That's horrific. I mean, if I can't just even ask, say, if I can't just tell women, do you, do you feel degraded by always having to pray in the back? Or I can't even ask the question, if there is a woman who is more knowledgeable than I am, why can't she lead prayer? I'm terrified to ask a question like that. I don't have the guts. Then how can Allah bless the people like that? Is that our religion? I don't think Islam was the religion of cowards. I, I don't think it's a religion of cowards. Uh, a follow-up question to this. How does one know when one's struggle is a result of the struggle to wanting to do what's good in the eyes of God versus the struggle associated with the pain of injustice? That's a really good question. And you know what? They're not different. Anytime you fight for justice, you are fighting for a godly cause. Because Allahul Haqq, Allah is Haqq. And whenever you stand for Haqq, you are standing for some level of divinity. People, what is the, the thing that makes most people drift away from Allah? It is believing either that haqq doesn't exist, so Allah doesn't exist, that, or 
that Allah, if Allah exists, Allah doesn't stand for Haq. So every time you as a Muslim stand firm for Haq, believe me, you will become like an open invitation to Allah because anyone that one of the things that I'll tell you this is this is uh, when I was used to work in Human Rights Watch, you know I, I even got to the point that I was in. Eventually, I served on the board of directors of Human Rights Watch. Every time prayer to come would come, time for prayer to come, I would pray in the in the in the you know I would find a room in one of the offices and I'd pray. And the thing that I, so many Muslim kids who were doing internships with Human Rights Watch, I can't tell you the number of times that they would come and say, we would have never imagined that working for Human Rights Watch, we would find one of their officers, one, or one of our bosses, uh, praying. There's number of situations where we, these young kids became reinterested in Islam again just because they found, and, and these, you know, I was very normal. I didn't, you know, I didn't have a beard back then. I didn't, just, you know, like, um, I was very normal. But when... As far so, as normal goes in your yeah. case. <laughs> you know, have you always prayed? Yeah, I, I've always prayed. So, so why you? Well, I actually the reason I'm here is because uh, I believe it's my Islamic duty. It's my Islamic duty to stand up for anyone who is persecuted. But, but we see you defend, you know, Christians who are persecuted here, or you know, Hindus are persecuted. It doesn't. And I say, yeah, that's my Islamic duty. And then they would, they would think, you know, I have some type of weird Islam. And I would explain to them that, no, it, it, this arises from my understanding of what haq is and what adl is and what qist is. And I think that was a far more effective da'wah than any Islamic school I could have, you know, taught on, taught in, in, on Sundays. It, it's even as a law professor. You know, uh, when I uh, joined UCLA Law, there were no no one taught human trafficking. I created a course on human trafficking, and when people would ask me why you teach human trafficking, I say because unfortunately Muslims are among Muslim countries are among the most um, worst offenders in trafficking human beings in the Gulf countries like the Emirates and Saudi. And I can't stand for it as a Muslim. I, 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 this is my way of fighting it. And um, subhanAllah, all these kids that, you know, in law school, oh, my parents are Muslim. Oh, I'm of Muslim origin. And then they, they changed to the point that right, you know, right before the pandemic, uh, the, the Muslim kids who used to t say things like my parents are Muslim and so on, 
went to the law school and asked that the law school dedicate a room for Salah. And this was an unprecedented. Um, I mean, you know, it meant a lot for, well, I was a chair of the Muslim Conduct Committee at UCLA for 10 years. Uh, for 10 years, uh, if a sexual assault happened on campus, the offender would have the great misfortune of having me handle their case. Um, I became famous on campus. If you assault, sexually assault another student, it's expulsion. No ifs, ands, or buts. I was, you know, and, you know, I didn't write Islamic stuff in, in, the, in my judgments that I issued, but everyone knew that it was because I'm a Muslim, that I had zero tolerance, zero tolerance. I closed down um, a fraternity with, you know, the fanatic of a Muslim. I declared a jihad on a fraternity. <laughs> uh, because they, this fraternity was engaged in date rape, um, you know, several cases of date rape, and, and I said, that's it, you know. I declared jihad, and I pursued my jihad until they were shut down. You know, of course, you know, after 10 years they removed me, but that's a different story. <laughs> the rapists on campus, uh, just, uh, I was their, that was their nightmare and terror. <laughs> And the, the people who were chasing Zukrov got you removed. So just another example. Well, that is a wonderful place to end. Thank you so much. Um, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, truly. This was just so divine and um, so monumental. It just gets better and better, alhamdulillah. Thank you for, for being with us. And um, inshallah, uh, we hope to see you on Saturday. Um, have a wonderful rest of the week. Assalamu alaikum everyone. Assalamu alaikum.